Welcome to the Tango Juliet Foxtrot podcast. My name is Ian Donnelly. I spent 30 years in the police and I did a lot of interesting jobs during that time at many ranks. When I left the police, I wrote a book all about my experiences, the title of which, unsurprisingly, is Tango Juliet Foxtrot. But you'll need to read the book to understand what TJF stands for. This podcast is all about British policing, the good, the bad and the ugly. If you're interested in what policing's really like, this is definitely the podcast for you. In it, I interview lots of people who have done some amazing things in policing. And I also give you my thoughts on what's been going on in the news to help you understand how it all works or doesn't work sometimes. Caution is advised as some of the topics can be distressing and there's some swearing from time to time. So, here we go. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Tango Juliet Foxshot podcast. Hope you're all well. Um, I'm going to have to apologise for my squeaky chair. I was listening back to a few episodes there recently, and I've got a habit of, I've got lots of annoying habits, I'm sure, but the one of my annoying podcasting habits is to swing in my chair, and it makes a distracting squeaky noise. I was also listening to another episode the other day, um, I think it was with Shay Doyle, and there was a kind of rhythmic thumping noise. Um, that was probably my knee. Uh, I've got sort of an annoying habit of um, kind of like fidgeting with my knee, which my wife tells me off for. She says, would you stop that? Um, it's probably a bit of a subliminal nervous habit, but there you go. It's worse thing, worse habits to have, I suppose. Um, right, so this week I am going to be chatting to oh, it's such a great, uh, such a great conversation with Adrian Tudway, who is a retired Metropolitan Police Chief Superintendent, but he is a top bloke and um, had a very, very full and interesting career. And before that, he was a Royal Marine for some time, uh, quite a few years, having joined as a boy soldier and uh, and went to the Falklands and fought in the Falklands. And it's absolutely fascinating. So we do talk quite a lot about the Falklands as well as his military career. And I think this is a really great way to mark the 40th anniversary of the Falklands conflict. Many people listening to this uh, will remember that as well as I do, 1982. Uh, but many will probably not remember it. But take my word for it, it was a massive, massive issue in Britain and Argentina, obviously, at the time. Many, many people lost their lives on both sides. Uh, it was a very relatively short but an extremely bloody conflict. So, uh, yeah, I think it's a real, a real top uh, conversation. I really enjoyed it and I learned a great deal. Uh, you'll be pleased to know that the podcast is doing really well. Numbers really picking up, actually. Clearly, lots of people are telling other people about it. Um, the numbers every month are just uh, going up and up in terms of listeners. Typically, every month I'm getting about somewhere between four and 5,000 downloads a month, which is great 
Um, and uh, the suppose the benchmark of that is that the podcasting platform company, Podbean. I mean, there's lots of places out there you can host your podcast, but I host mine with Podbean, and they've started sending me emails saying, "You've reached the magic number for monetizing your podcast." So clearly, uh, you've got to reach a certain threshold before they think that it's worth um, advertising and all that kind of stuff. Not a massive fan of adverts on podcasts. Uh, I'm not doing it for the money. I'm doing it because I think it's interesting and people enjoy listening to it. Um, but yeah, never say never, I suppose. Um, before we get into the interview with Adrian, just a, a quick, just an interesting thing today. I was, uh, as you do, on a Sunday morning. Uh, lying in bed, mindlessly scrolling on my phone. It's an annoying thing that I think we probably all do these days, isn't it? First thing you do, wake up, take your first breath. It used to be have a fag, wasn't it? But now you reach for your phone and start uh, scrolling. I, I discovered a, uh, it was actually a Facebook advert from my old force, uh, West Midlands Police, and it was a recruitment advert. And it was saying, our student officer entry programs are open for applications. We need your skills. But the the thing that really grabbed my attention was the picture, rather than showing a police officer or some someone doing something to do with policing, the picture was of a, a teenage girl looking a bit sad and the sort of strap line to the advert was, Tash needs your friendship. So I kind of looked and thought, what's that got to do with the police? And, you know, don't I'm not stupid. I know what they're trying to do. I know what they're trying to say. They're trying to say that the police service need to be uh, to, to, to hold out the hand of friendship to young people and to victims of crime, uh, people who are vulnerable, et cetera, et cetera. But I just looked at that and I thought, what on earth? are we saying to prospective applicants to join the police that the police is now all about? Um, don't get me wrong. Do I think victim care is important? Yes, I do. Uh, do I do I think we should be uh, aware of uh, the vulnerabilities, hidden, hidden vulnerabilities within our communities, uh, victims of crime? I mean, no one gets that. No one gets that better than I do, having been a DI in a public protection unit. But I think if you're thinking about joining the police, it might not be a bad idea to try and appeal to people who want to actually roll their sleeves up and start catching criminals and, uh, you know, taking on the bad people. Uh, and if you can put your arm around someone's shoulder and show that you care in the process of doing that, then that's great. But um, I think there is definitely a sense it's just another little thing that I just think uh, policing has lost its way and I put that out on LinkedIn um, anybody who sort of follows me on LinkedIn will have seen my post and one of the uh, people made a, a really is Vernal Scott I uh, just check his check his name I'm making it yeah Vernal Scott and he's the diversity and inclusion manager at Essex Police and he's a, he's a really really good guy um, and I've had a few backwards and forwards um, conversations with them on LinkedIn. You know, we don't agree on everything, but um, we, we agree on quite a lot. And I think Vernal is a really great 
advocate of policing and he's challenging i think uh where you need to be challenging but he 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 sort of replied to me so what i said i put the i i um I put a post on LinkedIn and I said, uh, this is from my own force, my old force, which I loved and there's thousands of great people, but I do worry about the continual downward spiral and relevance of policing to the public with recruitment ads like this. With a pitiful 5.8% of all crime now solved by police in England and Wales and a growing sense of public dissatisfaction, perhaps the police should be targeting recruits who want to roll up their sleeves and tackle criminals rather than become social workers, just saying. And Vernal sort of, I don't think he was challenging me, actually. I think I think it was just more, he was curious about what I was getting at, I think. And he said, uh, you know, Ian, what would make a better ad? Question mark. Um, and I said, Vernal, showing a picture of a smirking rapist thinking it's her word against mine. In other words, focus on the offender. And that makes it crystal clear what the job of the police is, rather than this woolly be my friend message that tells you nothing about the role of the police. If I was Tasha's father and she had been a victim of serious crime, I'd rather they caught the offender and prosecuted them rather than being her friend. So yeah, interesting, interesting that forces are using this sort of, it's almost like they've given up. That's that's my sense here. It's like they've given up trying to deal with crime because dealing with crime is just too difficult. So you know what, what we'll do is we'll just, we'll just kind of be your friend um, and, and it's a bit like, it's a bit like a doctor saying to you, um, I'm really sorry, Mr. Donnelly, um, uh, we're not going to treat your cancer, but, but we'll be friends with you if, if that's any help. It's like, no, I'd, I'd really rather you treated my cancer if that's all right with you. Anyway, there we go. There's my little rant for the day about the state of British policing. Um, right, we'll get into the interview with Adrian now. Hi Adrian, can you hear me? Hello Ian, yeah, I'm very well, thank you. Excellent, good, excellent. Are you going to put your camera on? Or uh... Yeah, let me have a look. I'm not normally shy, you're not, so... You're not, you're not in your uh... underwear. <laughs> I'm not in mine, I'm not in mine, no. <laughs> That's not to say I haven't borrowed somebody else's. <laughs> oh dear, so uh, how are you, you well? I'm very well, thank you, yes. And excellent, you? yes, yeah, really good actually. I've um, I've just come off the phone with uh, another uh, future podcast guest who's been brave enough to volunteer, and uh, yeah, it's um, it's great actually. I'm I'm really you know I've been looking forward to speaking to you because I think you've you've had an amazingly full career. You've done some <laughs> some incredible things, and uh, yeah, I just think as it goes on, it just seems to kind of kind of get better and better, really. So um, I think as people discover it as well lots of people are finding it now and they're thinking oh god and they're a bit kind of binge listening you know so <laughs> <laughs> not sure if that's a not sure if that's a good thing or a bad thing but um <laughs> i'm gonna i'm gonna clean my life i've decided i'm gonna clean my language up a bit i've been listening to the last two or three episodes and i've been far too sweary so i'm gonna have to put i'm gonna have to put a big swear box beside my microphone and uh, <laughs> if i if i stop drop start dropping the f bomb, <laughs> then i'm gonna have to find myself you know it's a bit difficult sometimes isn't it <laughs> well you know i'm a great believer in a bit of anglo-saxon sometimes it's, far, it's hard to find the right words you know but uh, so yeah so welcome to the podcast and um 
Yeah, how's your lovely wife? So we we we've got we've got this strange connection, haven't we? That uh, your wife Diane, I went, I was in the same class at training school at Hendon with her, wasn't I? You were, yes, yeah. She's very well, and she sends her love as well. Oh, that's great. Yeah, no, no she was uh, fantastic fun, and as was uh, you know, we were very lucky, and uh, we'll come on to talk about your experience of all of that as well. I'm sure. Um, so um, it's really hard to know where to start with you because you've had such an unbelievable. <laughs> kind of <laughs> full full career my god it's like you've lived about three li- lifetimes in one life you know well um, you know it's interesting you say that that's exactly what my psychiatrist says to me as well <laughs> <laughs> your tricks your trick cyclist so so yeah so let's go right back before you even joined the job um uh, and you were in the Royal Marines, weren't you? I made the terrible mistake, didn't I? When I, when I sent you a text, I said, oh, yeah, um, you know, when you were in the Paras kind of thing. And I went, and then there's this tiny voice in the back of my mind thought, oh, shit, I don't think he was in the Paras. I think he was a boot, I think he was a boot, ne- a boot, a boot, <laughs> he was a boot neck. And sure enough, you are. So you joined the Royal Marines, didn't you? I did. Yeah, I was. Uh, I, I mean, reflecting back now, I'm six, going to be 60 later this year. And you look back at... Um, uh, the sort of span of your life and all the different things that you've been privileged to be a part of or involved in and um i really have had a very a very full life full of some fantastic opportunities but yeah i um i left school at 16 um oh. i wasn't exactly um the academics dream that perhaps uh, people might have wanted me to be yeah but um yeah uh, at, at 16, three weeks after finishing my last O level, as they were then, mm. I joined the Royal Marines and walked through the gates, or, or rather, got off the train at um, Limpston Commando, the uh, the little concrete plank by the River X, yeah, and uh, and went into the training centre there. And um, yes, I started what turned out to be a, a fascinating and really exciting six years. Wow! In the Royal Marines. Gosh, so did you have any uh, sort of army and military connections in your family? What sort of t- pushed you into that? No, not necessarily, uh, or or not directly with the Royal Marines. No, uh, one of my best pals at school, a, a fellow that I'm still in contact with today, his dad had been in the uh, in the Royal Marines and was at Dieppe, right. and his brother also was at Dieppe with him in in the Marines, and. Um, it was um, it was secondhand stories through my pal mm-hmm. about what his dad and his uncle had experienced that mm. sort of sparked my interest. And then, um, as about a thirteen-year-old, uh, I had uh, the opportunity to join the Marine Cadets, as right. they were then. They're now the Royal Marine Cadets. Um, at that at the time I joined in the uh, in the 1970s, they were part of the Sea Cadet Corps, right. and living um, living in Ham, just between Richmond and Kingston in West London, yeah. um, we had a, a a quite large Sea Cadet um, contingent in Kingston, mm-hmm. and uh, at a place called Training Ship Steadfast, and they opened a Marine detachment 
and had right. marine cadets so i joined there it seemed a sort of natural thing to do and yeah. um one thing led to another and all of a sudden i rubbed my eyes yawned and i found myself at limpston how on earth did that happen <laughs> I was 16 i mean my god if i think about what i was like at 16 i just didn't uh, think like most people i didn't know my arse from my elbow um so the idea of the idea of turning up at 16 to become a Royal Marine Commando is just like, oh my God. So what was that like whenever you, st- I mean, did you, were you very young for the intake? I imagine you um, must have been. No, at that time, there was uh, a big recruiting drive on and they were taking adult troops that were people over 18 or right. uh, certainly over 17, three quarters uh, and upwards. And then junior troops, we did exactly the same training side by side in the same accommodation. Um, But they um, grouped together those who were under the age of 18 in junior troops. So 65 of us arrived at Limpston on the first day and uh, 11 passed out at the other end. Really? (laughs) Nine months or so later. Pretty tough then. uh, Yeah. And and in fairness, you know, nowadays that would be seen, I think, as a an exception child abuse (laughs) (laughs) this safeguarding referral wouldn't it it it, it would be an exceptionally sort of wasteful method of uh of of identifying people for um what are quite specialist jobs um because the attrition rate then was so high the attrition rate is still very high today um but the science behind the recruitment has become much more um sharp focused and yeah. so there's a lot of physiology that goes into it and they give young recruits um training plans they bring people down and they do a, a potential recruits course now which i think is three or four days mm-hmm. where it gives the um the recruit the opportunity to have a look at what the core really is as opposed to what yeah. they think it might be from what they've read in books or seen on films mm-hmm. and also for the organization to have a close look at the individual and yeah. in that respect it really works because yeah, yeah. they have people who come sometimes who they think yep you between your ears is what we need yeah, yeah. but actually just at the moment you've been spending a bit too long playing xbox yeah, yeah, and uh, you need to go away for six months or nine months, and here's a tailored dietary and exercise program that will bring you up to the required standard yeah, yeah. for you to um, to enter with a good chance of succeeding the physical elements without yeah. injuring or failing. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, you, you, I, I'm good. I'm good mates with a uh, an ex Royal Royal. Uh, got me going now uh parachute regiment pti and he's got his own business now and does a lot of fit and stuff and you know i sort of do that with him and um and he made exactly the same point he said you know when he first started as a as a, as a paras pti they just the, the the mindset was just beasting everyone everyone just got beasted and then sure enough lots of injuries lots of people threw the tile in and it was a massive waste and uh, and as you say now they're a lot more clever about bringing everyone up to the same level but do it gradually rather than try and kind of break them right at the start you know <laughs> so, um, so- um, yeah well I, mean, I was going to go on to say good, good life lessons um you know as a 16 year old we were literally stripped back to basics so they taught us how to Keep yourself clean, how to wash and look after yourself, look after your hygiene and your health, mm. how to wash clothes by hand, how to iron things um, and all that sort of stuff. And we had uh, boys who came from care homes who'd never had a family, yeah. uh, who thrived in those uh, in, in 
that environment, yeah. you know, because yeah. all of a sudden, instant family, instant yeah. brothers, just add water. Yeah, it's um, just, uh, all nice and structured, isn't it? And it sets you up for life. Yeah, definitely. So what year are we talking about then uh, when you when you joined? Well, I'm pleased to say it wasn't 1843. It was <laughs> nine, 1979, but sometimes it feels like it was 1800 something. Yeah, 19, 1979. So um, we will come on to talk about policey stuff in a minute, but I just think this is a really, really interesting. Um, so you obviously then went to war, didn't you, in the Falklands War in, in 81. So So you were still very young, weren't you? Well, actually, yeah, um, I, I did. I, I went away in 81, but 81, I went away to Northern Ireland, West Belfast oh, right, for okay. the uh, for the hunger strike. All oh, right. OK. Bloody hell. So um, that was that was 1981. I was 18 for that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was based at Fort White Rock just off the uh, just off the, <laughs> the White Rock Road near Kelly's Corner at right. the top end of Turf Lodge and uh, Anderson Town. So that must have been a bit of an eye opener. It was. Uh, it most certainly was. Yeah, it was uh, probably the uh, service's busiest time in a couple of decades. Mm. Um, yeah. Yeah, at yeah. that point in history, it was. Uh, if you remember, it was the uh, the big sort of political ideological battle mm. between uh, Margaret Thatcher's government and um, and the hunger strikers, yeah. um, which yeah. resulted sadly in deaths of people. Um, not only on the streets in Belfast and elsewhere, but also in the prison. Yeah. Um, you know, when you when you look at uh, look at the world today, uh, mm. deaths in those sort of circumstances are tragedy all the way around, whichever yeah. way you look at them. Yeah, definitely. I mean, and I remember it very well. I was 16 at the time, so I was living in Northern Ireland, obviously, where I'd grown up. And uh, yeah, I very, remember it very well, that period and very tense time. A lot of, you know, it was the... Um, it was just about as bad as it could get, really, uh, during the Troubles, wasn't it? So It was um, very divisive, very turbulent, and an awful lot of people were hurt. Hmm. And how long did you stay there for? I, I did a, a full six-month tour there um, and then went back. I was in 4-5 Commando um, right. and had gone on, having finished um, Commando training, went on to specialise um in uh, in that unit in mountain arctic warfare we used to go to norway every year north norway right and do the alpine um exercises mm-hmm. um so we alternated between uh, north norway skiing and climbing and digging holes in the snow and uh, the highlands of scotland and then in 1982 um at 19 i went away with the unit again when the falklands war broke out bloody hell oh mate it's like I feel exhausted already. I need to go and have a <laughs> I need to go and have a lie down. I think so. Um, so yeah. So so uh, it's always a tricky one, isn't it? I mean, I know it was forty years ago, but I know that the the physical, in many cases, and the psychological wounds still run very deep for a lot of people. I mean, could, are you happy to talk a little bit about what, was, what it was like going to war in eighty two? Yes, yes, I am. Um, I mean, the the again, it's it's. It's fascinating looking at events of 40 years ago through today's lens, because, of course, we didn't have mobile telephones. A telephone was something that sat in the corner at home and mum would let you use it once a week if you were very good. It had a doily on top of it um, and lots and lots of wires. Um, So, of course, we didn't have the Internet. We weren't connected in any way. So when I uh, went off with uh, my unit, and we were recalled on the morning that the invasion actually happened. Um, we set off 
from Southampton on board a uh, Royal Fleet Auxiliary ship called Stromness, which mm. was a cargo vessel. And the MOD were in the process of selling it to, I believe it was the New Zealand Navy as a, uh, as a cargo resupply ship. Um, anyway, as soon as that happened, all bets were off. And I think somebody nicked the ignition keys back mm. and they cut what was the main holdout over a long weekend. Mm. And the dockies down at um, Portsmouth and Southampton uh, played a blinder as usual and equipped the main hold with bunks in rows of four right between the uh, the the bulkheads uh, of the uh, of the hold mm. and uh, about 350 of us went down inside there oh, the only thing they off. didn't have time to install was any form of uh, air conditioning oh nice <laughs> nice just particularly when you get to uh, sort of the equator then that must have been absolutely interesting. yes interesting you can imagine you can tell when somebody five rows of bunks away has had a curry for tea um and uh, so we we set sail um, in in the Stromness, um, and that was it. Then we were almost completely cut off from the rest of the world. Obviously, we were told what came in daily on various yeah. signals. Yeah, yeah. The intelligence picture built. We uh, refreshed our training in all sorts of different uh, things. We looked at maps of the region. Um, the Royal Marines have a very long history with the Falkland Islands. They've mm always maintained the garrison there um, that protected the islands. Um, So there were the odd one or two amongst uh, the lads on board who'd actually served there. And it was a 12 month unaccompanied posting in those days. So if you got, uh, if you got pinged to be drafted to the Falklands, you know, you got to know the place as well. Yeah. Yeah, Well, the garrison at South Georgia fought uh, a very um, brave and determined um, resistance to the initial Argentinian um, landings, didn't they? Um, Well, and it's been quite interesting. The BBC have uh, just recently um, run some documentaries um, and dispelled what has been a bit of a a sort of an open wound, really, I think, for um, the the fellows from uh, what was known as Naval Party 8901. Mm. Uh, NP8901 were the garrison for the Falklands and uh, the suggestion that uh, I think the Sun had led at the time although I didn't see it because I wasn't I wasn't in the UK I was on my way um, that they had um, just given in when in actual fact they um, dug themselves in around government house in Port Stanley Mm. and also out at um, out at uh, Gritviken in Mm. uh, in South Georgia and um, stood and fought and were prepared to fight to the last man and it was only when the um the governor sir rex hunt um had contact from the argentine commander who said look your men have fought really 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 bravely and we've lost a number of our men but we've got a choice now you know we will come and roll right over the top of you and that will result in the loss of all of those lives or you can do the decent and honorable thing for your people and surrender and uh, so reluctantly, that's what Sir Rex did. And of course, his, uh, his Royal Marines followed their orders and, and put their weapons down then. Mm. But they uh, were flown back to Montevideo in Uruguay and straight back to the UK, where they all promptly turned round and got back on the uh, task force shipping that was on their way out and Perfect. came back as uh, Juliet Company attached to 4-2 Commando. Uh, and I have some I have some excellent pals who uh, were part of that 
um, that whole sort of escapade, if you like. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. yeah so, quite. so when, um, obviously, we've got a lot to talk about right, the police, but it is interesting. So where, where did you um, land in the Falklands then? Well, I, I came out of, uh, I came down the ramp of a landing craft on Red Beach 1 mm. in the assault wave at um, Ajax Bay, which was a um, at the top of what was then called Bomb Alley. Mm. Um, in just off Falkland Sound, and there was a disused mutton plant, which was the only building for miles around. Mm. Um, and we came up the beach just after dawn, mm. um, and it was we weren't sure what to expect. We weren't sure whether we were going to have a, a hot or a cold landing. Mm. If you know, if you understand, we didn't know whether we were going to be physically resisted as we landed. Mm. Um, we got there and found that the buildings were unoccupied. Um, I learned a very, very quick lesson. Penguins look lovely in cartoons, but by God, they stink when you get near them. Oh, really? And they also bite. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but within within probably an hour, an hour and a half of um, us getting onto the beach and up into the um into the area behind the beach, the Argentine Air Force started their um, their air raids into into um, Ajax Bay and the uh, Blue Beach and Green Beach as well. Um, to try and initially, they were it appeared initially to us that they were trying to um, hit troops on the land, but then they very quickly switched to trying to bomb the ships. Right. Uh, and did so with some significant success. Um, Is that where the Sagala had was hit? Was it... No, that was further around. That was that was slightly later. This was uh, HMS Arden, HMS Antelope. Oh, yes. Um, some of those terrible pictures. There's a very, very iconic picture of the Falklands War, uh, which shows HMS Antelope lit against a black night sky mm. with a massive explosion, a big aura all around the ship. Mm. where the main magazines went up and um, me and my pals were on a, a resupply patrol up and over the top of the mountain range. Mm -hmm. um, we were taking water and, and uh, food resupplies to some uh, teams that were uh, manning observation posts on the yeah. opposite side of the hill. And just as we got to the brow of the hill in darkness, the, uh, the ship exploded and we lay there for about an hour just watching these fires burning in the ship just a few oh, hundred nice. yards down the hill and into the bay um, before we could roll over the top because, of course, we'd have been silhouetted on the skyline if we'd yeah. all yeah, yeah. moved over. Um, and by the next morning, the antelope had broken in half in the middle and the bow and the stern were just poking out of the water at Falkland Sound. Oh, it's terrible, isn't it? Terrible. I mean, this is a, there's a not, there's so many people today, young younger people today, who don't know anything about the Falklands, do they? They don't understand that there was. I mean, I remember it as clearly as if as if it was not yesterday, but you know, I was seventeen at the time, so you know, we were all very interested in what was going on, and we were following it all on the news on a on a daily basis, in a, in a way that you know. I mean, we're kind of used to that saturation coverage of news stories today, aren't we? But back then, mm -hmm. it was it was people literally would stop everything to come and gather around the television and, and, and watch the latest sort of news bulletin. So, so you uh, you, you presumably had a bit of a, a yomp then, as they say in the Royal Marines, to absolutely get to, to, to get to where you were 
fighting, I suppose? We, uh, we went from, uh, we moved across again by landing craft from um, where we were over to the opposite side of the bay. And then we set off on what's now become known as the famous Yomp. And over the next couple of days, we covered 90 miles covering everything. Oh we went first to a small settlement called uh, Douglas, Douglas House, which is a, a very remote sheep farm. Um, and we were there just, I think, overnight. And there was the um, enemy who had been in that vicinity had seen herders coming mm. and had legged it beforehand. And we moved on from there then to a place called Teal Inlet, which is a slightly larger uh, settlement. Um, when I say larger, this is Falklands larger. Even today, there's only maybe 10 buildings there. Right. Not so all of them are so dwellings. 40, 45 odd miles a day for two days. And what sort of weights were you carrying? Um, well, uh, we were in the region of um, oh, the lighter ones, about 120 pounds, I would suggest. Oh and then beyond that, obviously, getting heavier and heavier. Um, the other uh, the other thing was that, um, of course, we were operating in extremely cold weather mm -hmm. uh, and it was extremely wet as well. Right. Uh, the temperature came up by a couple of degrees to just enough to stop it snowing and start the driving rain. So everything got soaking wet through. And of course, once you're wet, mm. that's it. You know, you're wet. Yeah, um, yeah, and yeah. for us, and the, equipment, we were, the equipment wasn't as good in those days, was it? Certainly boots and things like that. Well, we were lucky. Um, again, I, I consider myself very fortunate that um, I'd had the benefit of the expertise of the Mountain Arctic Warfare Carder of the mm. Royal Marines, who are the instructors who train troops for uh, working in extreme conditions. And with the enhanced training that allowed us to uh, operate much more effectively at those mm. extremes, mm. we also had um, far better boots and far better Bergens right. than the standard um, issue to, uh, to our contemporaries in some of the other military units that went. Mm. And so that, I think, was a, a significant factor. That and, mm. you know, um, a Royal Marine's determination not to give up yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, was was were very significant factors in uh, in what we did, and we moved on then very quickly from Teal Inlet to a patrol base um, at Mount Kent, right. where we then held for about uh, eight nights before we uh, then went on to to do um, the night battles, and it was in that period of time um, that some of the uh, some of the lads from the Fifth Infantry Brigade who um, had been sent down to bolster uh, mm. the response. Uh, in particular, um, the Welsh Guards um, were caught on ships as they moved round. They um, mm. were, uh, weren't following the same route that we followed mm. um, and were, the decision had been made to move them by sea, but mm. they moved on ships that were also carrying ammunition. Right which um, under normal circumstances would not be uh, mm. permitted. Yeah. Um, and the rest, unfortunately, is history. Uh, some American Skyhawks um, came up the sound and saw them, took their opportunity and bombed them, and the ships blew up. And the, uh, the, the result was horrific. Mm. 
a lot of people died there were a lot more people who were horrifically burned mm. um burned and disfigured either probably the most um uh, well known or most identifiable of those people is simon weston that's right who was in the welsh guards a very brave uh young man and a and a a man who's gone on to um, fight the dreadful injuries that he had and use that for good and yeah, help yeah. people who have uh, not only burns injuries, but to overcome other um, debilitating disabilities, conditions yeah. or injuries and to see that there is a way forward. Yeah, but yeah. Um, an awful lot of people were um, were killed or very seriously injured that day. And it was a, a, a tragedy in every sense of the word. And I, and I guess in order to... Mm to balance that up as well it's important not to forget that there was a, a battle also going on at sea so hms sheffield the atlantic mm. conveyor yeah. hms coventry other ships were also sunk and also um the belgrano the general belgrano that's right the um the argentine yeah. flagship yeah. i mean it was really really for the was it was ne wasn't necessarily the longest duration of a war but it was a very bloody conflict for a for a quite a short space of time wasn't it I think it was about 74 days. Yes. Yeah. Um, but um, I think the English uh, side lost. Uh, and I know that my uh, my old friends will forgive me if I go and get the figure exactly right. But it was upwards of 250, I believe, right. uh, English servicemen who died. Mm. Um, and for the Argentinians, um, upwards of 800 that are known. But there mm. are their record keeping wasn't as good. And there are, I'm sure, more. Um, and then I took part in the um, in the night battles, which were in the, around the Ring of Mountains just outside Port Stanley. So um, nice. on the 11th of June, the night, the 11th of 12th of um, June, 82, we had moved during the previous night into no man's land. And we lay there all day in the uh, in the bracken mm. watching our objective in the distance, which is this. Uh, quite um striking twin peaked um feature um and to the left of us was tumbledown mount tumbledown which uh three para took and then to the right of our of uh, our view was mount harriet which four two commando took right. and what our brief was to lie and wait and we weren't to uh, we could move up once darkness had begun to fall, but mm. we weren't to cross our start line until the Paris had got their battle established on Mount Longdon. So again, we moved down, um, forded a, a small river, the Murrell River, and then we lay in these peat banks at the bottom of the uh, the slopes of the Mount of Two Sisters mm. uh, and watched to our left um, this vicious battle going on with three para on Mount Longdon. Um, a, a very bloody encounter very difficult terrain yeah um and then we um we then moved and mounted a silent night attack yeah. up the two sisters feature and got within well within 100 meters of the enemy before they even knew that we were there right um and then there was a, a couple of hours of quite savage fighting mm -hmm. uh, bayonets were fixed but um it was over and done with as quickly as it could be mm. and as humanely as it could be. And yeah. one of the things that, um, again, that perhaps 
people don't realize was that uh, once you've got over the savage gutter fighting stage, mm. you then go back and you treat your enemies wounded mm. alongside your own. And, yeah. you know, humanity comes back to bear. Yeah, yeah. And again, that, I, you know, for the rest of life, I suppose, as a young and impressionable 19 year old, those sorts of things stay with you. You oh know, my God, well, I can't even imagine it. I mean, 19 years old, it's it's uh, barely beyond belief, you know, to be fighting hand to hand combat in that way that probably the British Army hadn't been doing since the Second World War, I suppose, or maybe Korea, arguably, maybe Korea. Um, Korea, maybe Aden a little bit. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, so do you mind me asking, did that did that have a big impact on you in terms of is that something that you struggled with when you came home or since or was that something that everyone has because different people deal with things in different ways don't they Um, yeah they do um i think if you'd asked me that question 40 years ago i'd have said i don't know what you're talking about Mm. 40 years on Mm. with the benefit of hindsight i would say yes absolutely it it affected me And, and in actual fact i would challenge anybody who said that events like that hadn't affected them to uh, to have a, a long hard look at themselves because they're mm. probably actually suffering more than they realize and i think that yeah. realization um comes um when you are forced to confront those those things i felt at the time that i was doing okay um mm. and in every respect outwardly i think i was but mm. um mm. i think you then realize that you know not everybody has violent yeah. nightmares no, no. um uh, you know if you'd spoken to my first wife she would say she you know was fed up once a month or so of waking up in the morning and finding the duvet full of mud because i'd got up in the middle of the night and gone out and dug around in the flower beds in the garden for what mm. reason god only knows oh god um but so sort of outwardly um i was absolutely fine and in actual fact I didn't, um, it was probably the early 1990s, so that would be a good decade later, that Mm. I actually did talk to somebody Mm. uh, about some of the things that I'd seen and experienced after I dealt with, um, or dealt with was the first uh, detective on scene to a a double fatal shooting, which in fact turned out to be a murder-suicide. And um, without being too graphic about it, mm. uh, a young lady um, had been murdered by uh, her boyfriend who then turned a shotgun on himself, but he'd mm. shot her in the face with the shotgun. So oh. she had the um, the most catastrophic mm. head injuries you can imagine. Yeah. Um, and that all of a sudden brought mm. me right down to sort of ground yeah. zero. So yeah, after yeah, that, yeah. I sought some help um in the form of uh talking therapy and i had i only had about five or six sessions um mm. it was all very gentle all very low-key god bless the good old met the met provided yeah. that for me um and it just helped me to put into context um events that were so exceptional so mm. extreme mm. that they are um beyond the limit of your your normal experience or your normal understanding and in actual Mm. fact what that taught me and it was something that i've carried on throughout the rest of my life Mm. is that um 
actually it's um, the, the strongest trees bend when there's a gale or a storm. Yeah. The ones that snap are the ones that are brittle and stand up straight and won't flex. And yeah. human beings are very much like that. And sometimes yeah. in life yeah. we have to deal with or experience or confront situations that are so outside the norm yeah. that to afterwards be able to sit and yeah. just chat in a safe environment, yeah. then that, that really is worth its weight in gold yeah. and saves years worth of anguish. Well, it's, it's almost like a cliche now, isn't it, where, where someone will end up to taking their own life and everyone around them just goes, where did that come from? You know, it seems to they seem to have gone from, you know, outwardly, at least, um, uh, being completely fine and leading what appears to be a completely normal sort of life. And then they kill themselves. But clearly there is a whole raft of things going on with that person inside their own head that they just have never managed to find the right words to deal with it have they no um, that's, that's right and life is life is an imperfect science isn't it mm, mm. you know uh, i um i don't believe for a minute that very very many people get up every morning and think right i'm going to do somebody harm today or i'm you know mm. i'm going to do the wrong thing 99.9% of the population, I'm sure, wake mm. up and think, you know, today's going to be a good day. And, and people generally try to do good things and behave in an acceptable and a decent way. But when you're in an emergency service like the police in particular, where, mm. you know, you don't have the luxury of going around knocking on the door and saying, hey, Mr. Smith, you've just won the lottery. <laughs> it's uh, it's yeah. normally completely the opposite. You know, yeah. you are you are stacking up a... Um, uh, a bank, if you like, a bank account full of mm. deposits of people's grief and anguish at the yep. worst times in their lives. Yeah. Um, and, you know, people um, often measure um, trauma for themselves, understandably, mm. by bereavement. Yeah. Um, but if you're the person who in a day at work has to go and deliver two or three messages to two mm. or three different families mm. about a bereavement and soak mm. up all of that emotion and mm. all of that anguish and pain it stands to reason that later on you need yeah. some means of venting that yes definitely and we'll come on later on to talk about you know what's been going on with the with the, the job uh, over the last few years i'd like to be welcome your thoughts and all of that so I, i'm very conscious i don't want to sort of fast forward through what is by any definition a fascinating account of your military <laughs> career but uh, given that it is a policey podcast it probably needs to come on <laughs> otherwise otherwise we'll be here for about five hours won't we? um but uh, so so anyway um in fact just on that one uh, i might uh, refer you into a mate of mine hugh who does his own podcast called h hour and uh, he interviews a lot of people who are ex-military and I know he's really interested in Falkland stuff. Um, so oh, that, so I that'd might, be my uh, pleasure. I might send his de your details to him and, and then and then you can have a an entire podcast devoted purely <laughs> to military stuff, you know. So anyway, so if you don't mind, what we'll do is we'll move on to. So you obviously leave the Marines. You do six years there. Yeah. Yeah, I, uh, I was very, very fortunate. And this is extremely relevant to what we're talking about now in terms of policing. Mm -hmm. um, in 1985, 
I was part of a recruitment drive uh, that was positively aimed by policing towards ex-servicemen. Right. And people who had life experience that they could bring yeah. into policing. And I am really, um, I, I can't emphasize enough how important I personally feel that that is. Um, mm -hmm. If you looked on the face of it, I probably didn't have the educational qualifications on paper mm. to have joined the Met. Mm. But I came through this process where they looked for, uh, they looked at various sections of the military and um, made, what allowances they made, but um, you, uh, you got an interview. And so I, I left the Corps in uh, March of 1985 and started at Hendon in the June. Right. Which was the first available date. So I imagine, um, given the fact you'd come from a military, not just a military, but Royal Marines background, highly disciplined, um, that I imagine you probably find the training pretty straightforward or would that be not necessarily <laughs> be the case? <laughs> well, um, the, uh, the Royal Marines don't do drills like the army. They do it like the Navy. So it's none of this stamping about business. Right. Um, and also having come from a um you know the uh, the royal marines providing a, a commando force to uk forces there was pleasurably little in the way of polishing things so they shone right, okay oh, <laughs> uh, there was okay. a little bit of that there was uh, a little bit more of that at hendon than uh, than i was used to but nothing that right. uh, couldn't be coped with uh -huh. um i mean it, it it was very funny when when i arrived at hendon i thought i'd be really clever I didn't know uh, much about the police, but I did remember back to when I arrived at Limston and we got off the train and the first thing they did was say, right, put your suitcase on your head and run up and down that railway embankment a couple of times. So when I arrived at Hendon, I thought, I'm going to take next to nothing with me because yeah. they'll, I'll have my suitcase on my head and be running up and down the slope. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, I'll, I'll be, uh, I'll be the swiftest by a long shot because there won't be much in my suitcase only to find that, uh, it was, uh, well, welcome, sir. And please, we're very pleased to see you. And would you like to come and have a cup of coffee? And I kept looking around me, looking from left to right, thinking there's got to be a catch here somewhere, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, but there wasn't. Um, it was, uh, it was, it was very interesting academically. Um, I found it um, a challenge mm. because I certainly hadn't been a particularly diligent student at school. Mm. Uh, I was more interested in my sport and all the rest of it. Um, but uh, I found that um, the training at Hendon gave a focus. It was described by some of my colleagues who had uh, come through a university pathway as being like compressing a degree course into 20 weeks mm -hmm. because as you know you know yeah, yeah. the lear the learning well, there was, was a lot to learn wasn't there? the learning was massively intense um but with the self-discipline um yeah. i managed to get on top of that and mm. i thoroughly enjoyed it i met people from all walks of life um some really really interesting and fascinating people but a little bit like joining the uh, royal marines what i found was uh, a group of disparate people who all wanted to serve yeah 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 and i, I had this conversation with with several um you know ex-podcast guests and about the mets it was such an unbelievably diverse group of people wasn't it who ended up pitching it was. Up together it was and accents from every part of the country wasn't it <laughs> but but everybody had something to offer everybody yeah. had something to give 
Um, And as I say, everybody, uh, it probably sounds a bit cliched now, and it probably would have been if I'd been talking about it then. But with the benefit of life experience, everybody had the same passion and the same intention. And it was to serve. Yes, to serve the public. So, you know, where did you get uh, where did you get posted to your first posting? Well, my first posting was to Hammersmith, good old Foxtrot Delta. Right. Um, and I went there at the end of 1985 and onto a relief. Mm-hmm. Um, but I didn't finish my probation in uniform. At, at about 18 months, um, I uh, moved on to a burglary squad and then a, right. a crime and drug squad. So that's quite quite young then, really, because normally, as you know, most people probably wouldn't get a crack at those sort of jobs for maybe two or three years, would they at least? Yeah, I, I, that's right. And I think it was... Um, I didn't join the police with any um, preconceived ideas about um, going into the sort of detective or investigative world, Um, but I very quickly fell into it. And um, I think one of the things that having um, been in the service had taught me um, was how to talk to people and how to engage with people on lots and lots of different levels. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I had quite a flair for was informant handling right and so and you had to talk to people absolutely and so i naturally sort of gravitated in that way um and i had some very decent good people around good solid people around me Mm -hmm. who um sort of helped steer me in that direction um and off i went and i uh, in, in something that sounds something quite dinosauric nowadays, I suppose. Um, I finished my career 30 years later, having been a career detective, and I never yeah. served in uniform again. Really? Gosh. Um, just because that was the way that my, you know, the way the cookie crumbled for me. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's funny because I, I was similar, I suppose, in the sense that I, I um, spent a long time out of uniform, but then you know, I then periodically went back to it for, for like, you know, short periods of time. I was not that short, maybe two or three years at the time. But a uniform sergeant, I mean, being a uniform sergeant, I wouldn't have missed that job for any anything. It was <laughs> absolutely brilliant job. I loved every minute of it. It was such a laugh. And, um, yeah, so uh, there's definitely pros and cons to, to both, aren't there, really? I think so. I, I don't think that... Um... If, if you sort of look at it, uh, you know, longer term, uh, whilst I had a fantastic career and did some incredible things, um, I don't think that it was necessarily a strength that right. I didn't keep that that uh, sort of general base. Yeah, uh, it's, it's, it's sort of, um, it's quite sad, isn't it, that historically there's been a bit of tension or... Uh, at best, it's good-natured piss-taking, isn't it? Between you know, <laughs> un- uniform and detectives. At best, good, good-natured piss-taking. At worst, it's a, a horrible elitist mentality that sees uniform officers as just a bit shit. You know, it and sort of it sort of goes in 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 waves, doesn't it? Because I, I I know exactly what you mean, and and right back at the start of my time out of uniform i think it was on one of those periods where it was very much elitist and you know if there was any new gucci kit to come it would come to the detectives and nobody else would have it and then the wheel turned 
and all of a sudden the detectives felt that they were really just the refuse collectors mm. for um, whatever the, their uniformed colleagues brought through the door because yeah. they didn't yeah. deal with the didn't deal with prisoners or anything yeah. else and felt completely disinhibited about dumping you something with zero evidence and expecting you to uh, you know produce a silk purse out of this particular sow's ear That's and right. I, I think you know there are it, it, it goes in model in waves but the bottom line is that everybody really was part of the same mm. job yeah yeah. everybody yeah. had the same mission to serve the public and protect people mm. um and it, you know it's just sad that sometimes where you have teams of people who work together closely they can become insular and elitist and yeah, that's yeah. really yeah really not necessarily helpful but that's yeah. down to leadership and we went we went through that period i'm sure you remember it well period where it wasn't it paul condom did he bring in tenure you know where yes where, where he was trying to kind of break up this sort of elitist mentality um and people were sent uh, off back to uniform or whatever after i don't know what the period was i think it was a maximum of seven or eight years or something like that and um it caused a lot of unhappiness didn't it but I've got to say, I personally think it's really important for cops in any department to maintain that understanding of what goes on in the uniform world, because it changes constantly. Well, whilst the basic job doesn't change in terms of going out and responding to or being proactive about dealing with what's going on in the street, I do think um, I, I hear so many people who are career detectives talk such nonsense about uniform policing and, and and vice versa actually you know i hear a lot of there's a lot of uniform officers who have got no understanding of the complexities of running a murder investigation or uh, the issues around disclosure or forensic management or all of that kind of stuff mm. you know so so yeah a bit of bit of i say to anybody listening to this who's looking at a long-term career in the police i'd say kind of mix it up a bit don't sort of stay in your lane too much i think it's probably i would absolutely i would absolutely agree cross fertilization brings out the best for everybody definitely so um let's talk about your so you obviously kind of set off on your career as a detective then um what sort of sort of jobs did you do sort of in your first i don't know um kind of 10 years i suppose maybe um, well, as, as I say, I, I, I did my uh, CID course at Hendon and uh, then I was posted to Battersea as the DC, um, mm. initially into the main office dealing with um, all the normal um, turnover of, uh, of things. And we went through uh, a variety of different experiments whilst we were there, one of which um, was doing night duty on your own. As right. a detective and by that i mean you know without the uh, mm. your, your aide or assistant yeah who who was uh you know which was a an unmitigated disaster <laughs> <laughs> yeah, i'm sure somewhere in in an office somebody had moved some uh lines on a uh, a whiteboard and thought oh we can save a couple of quid here um but yeah it was uh it was dreadful and that was where i had the uh, the horrific um murder and suicide to deal with that um uh on my own mm, yeah that yeah. um you Not know and, and you think hang on a minute you know there are 99 things i should be doing here but i've yeah. only got one pair of hands and just myself mm. you know it uh 
at two o'clock in the morning it's uh, yeah it's, I mean, it's funny call. it's funny isn't it you know you think i mean it's ridiculous now when you think about it uh that you would have this this sort of uh night duty dc it was the night d wasn't it they referred yeah. to the, the night d and you were it you were it you were the only detective on that borough um because there's no point in trying to call anybody else in because they were probably either in bed or pissed um you know what i mean so you you you, you basically had it you know it was down to you to sort it all out wasn't it you know it certainly was yeah it certainly was um but you know it was it, these things come and these things go and um, one of the things that I really loved about um, Battersea was um, at that at that stage, uh, I used to get a little bit of seasonal hay fever. For some reason, I don't now. I guess that's mm. getting older or getting older. But um, Battersea was one of the few places where in the uh, in the middle of winter at three o'clock in the morning, you could go to mump a cup of coffee, yeah. which for uh, people not familiar with the term mump is uh, persuader. <laughs> persuade a, a generous member of the public that they're going to make you a cup of coffee we yeah. used to go to new Covent garden market which was on oh, our yeah. ground and into the flower market and you could wander around the flower market fill your nose with pollen and be sneezing in oh, the middle God. of february um at three o'clock in the morning bizarre absolutely I bizarre i know it's weird i always forget i'll never forget because i used to work in clapham when i used to travel in i used to live in kingston so I used to travel in on the a3 uh, into Wandsworth, round the Wandsworth round the bike, usually very far too fast on my motorbike. I, Likewise. I got, I, got, <laughs> I, got, I, got tugged, I got tugged a couple of times by uniformed cops uh, and a bloke got me off the bike and said, uh, you know, have you an idea what speed you're going, blah, blah, blah. And um, then they find out that you're all build up there. <laughs> Tell you not to be so, not be so, it's like six o'clock in the morning. There's nothing else in the road. They're bored, aren't they? Then they see this twat coming through at about, <laughs> about 80 miles an hour with his knee down, you know, sort of. Yeah. <laughs> and um, yeah, I always never forget this. The smell of Young's Brewery. Well, every time you go through Waldensworth, the smell of the Young's Brewery always kind of springs to mind, doesn't it? Yeah. Do you know, I still, I'm still convinced that a drop of Young's kills just about anything. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, yeah, so I was at I was at Battersea for uh, um, about three years, and um, I had uh, one of the <laughs> defining sort of moments of my career, I suppose. Still a relatively young man, um, uh, and and a DC. I was on the robbery squad at Battersea, which was very busy uh, and great fun, very lively. And I had a DI at the time who, who will remain nameless, <laughs> but a a really really great man a really good man and uh but a right old gore blimey you know yeah. a right yeah. geezer yeah yeah and he called me in one day and i can't possibly repeat even with your swear box because it would be far <laughs> too bad what he said to me but he said uh along the lines of well tell us you're uh you're not stupid are you <laughs> my sort of thinking where's this going off no governor i i don't think i am and he said right well you know I know you're not stupid because by this afternoon you'll have a request on my desk to take the exam, won't you? The sergeant's <laughs> exam. And right. I, of course, at that point, I had absolutely no intention whatsoever of taking mm. promotion. I was having a whale of a time and, um, you know, thought the world was a thoroughly exciting place. Um, but I went away and I thought, oh, all right. Well, there's obviously a bit of a hint there. So mm. I applied to take the exam and, and I, I passed the sergeant's exam much to my surprise um and now i got moved then to brixton i volunteered to go to brixton as a ds right 
Um, and at that time... Um, so what year are we talking about now? We're 93. 93 so we were in the okay. moratorium on promotion at the time. Right. There was sort of 18 months to two years where nobody could be promoted. Yeah. Um, so people were being posted, and I was one of them, as an acting DS. Right. Or a temporary DS until they got the um, the green light to go ahead with uh, actual substantive promotions again. Um, and I went to, I went by my own hand to Brixton. Um, and I suppose looking back at my, uh, uh, my policing career was almost in two halves. I did half out um, on uh, boroughs or divisions or mm -hmm. uh, whatever they're called today, uh, BCUs. And then the other half um almost exactly the other half mm -hmm. on specialist uh, operations units and right. of my time spent out um on uh divisional policing as it was then brixton mm -hmm. knocked everything else into a cocktail it was mm -hmm. the most fantastic place to work yeah um contrary to what a lot of uh, the uh the journalists and uh, red tops would have people believe yeah. the population in Brixton were delighted to see us 99 mm -hmm. times out of uh, 100. Yeah. Um, and I met some of the warmest, most decent, friendly people there yeah. uh, than I have in any other place in yeah. my in my life. And indeed, mm -hmm. I, I've got uh, I had a mate there who um, was a carpenter and I can't remember which of the islands he was from. But um, he was a West Indian and uh, we sort of became mates. We'd have a beer after after I'd finished work or whatever. And he moved back to the islands about 12 years ago when he retired. Mm. I still get a text off him yeah. <laughs> on Father's Day every year and on New Year's Day. Oh, bless him. Uh, a chap called, his, I won't say his second name, chap called Dalton. So Dalton, if you ever listen to this, mate, <laughs> I think about you. I think about you at least twice a year, but it is yeah. at least twice a year. You know, people would um, people would have you believe that, that, you know, that white police officers are the invaders coming into Brixton to oppress the, uh, oppress the community. Mm. Absolutely undiluted yeah. cobblers i know it's nonsense isn't it and the thing is the thing that really pisses us all off as cops is that we know that what you've said is true because we've worked in those communities for many years and we've got generally speaking excellent relationships with the normal people ordinary people just going about their, their business um and but unfortunately, the only people who seem to get listened to are the people who shout the loudest, who do not represent the overwhelming majority of the people who actually live in those communities. They're just um, kind of noisy, self-appointed community leaders or activists who will always paint the police as these this oppressive organization when and it's very frustrating isn't it and we anyway we'll come on to try to talk about some of that stuff maybe later on in terms, <laughs> in terms of the the way that our organization the seat in my view the way that some of the most senior people in our organization have failed to stick up for us um and have yes. just kind of given in to that sort of noisy narrative i suppose but anyway let's stick stick with you 
Yeah. Um, so so Brixton, Brixton main office, some some really fascinating inquiries there. I uh, I did a, a as a, a main office DS. I rang a gang rape inquiry, which uh, was truly awful. Um, it got dubbed the spider's web by uh, the court reporters at the Bailey, and we were we were caught for about eight or ten weeks with it. Mm. Horrific Japanese tourists taken off the street. Uh, and subjected I, to... I remember that job. Yeah. yeah. I remember that job. Um, and then from there, I moved on to Brixton's Robbery Squad and mm. ran that for a couple of years. Again, absolutely fascinating. Mm. Fascinating mm. time. We did uh, surveillance courses and um, we had some real successes. Uh, and I think during one of the operations, I think it was for some reason called Operation Narrative, we had the first 24 hours um, where Brixton didn't record a single street robbery mm. between mm. Uh, 0001 hours and 2359 hours on one particular day, which was quite an achievement. Were you there about the same sort of... Kevin Hurley, was he around at that sort of time? No, Kevin wasn't there. I've, he, we've sort of bounced around near to one another, but mm. not at the same time. Yeah. No, he, he wasn't at Brixton then. Right, I was just curious because I, I spoke to him in an earlier episode. But uh, anyway, carry on. Um, uh, so yeah, so did you did you go on to any sort of central squads like the the kind of corporate type squads after that? Uh, I did. Yeah, I went from I was at Brixton from, until ninety seven, and then got moved to Sutton as a DS, mm -hmm. and took the uh, inspector's exam while I was there, and. Um, I got made DI in 99, I think it was, and um, was thoroughly, again, thoroughly enjoying myself as uh, mm. a divisional DI and having a, mm. having a whale of a time uh, running various bits and pieces. Uh, in those days, you, um, you ran your own murders if they were mm. considered low risk and domestic, uh, yeah. that sort of thing. Um, but then in um, then the Twin Towers came down and the whole world changed. Mm. Mm. And within three months, I'd um, been um, moved up to the yard, as was, mm. uh, and I moved up to SO10, the um, undercover and uh, informants central section. Right. What, what was the old covert operations group? Yeah. Um, and was I that some, was that something you applied for? Or were you sort of? I like, did. No, I, I applied. Well, I was invited. I was. Yeah. I was. It was a, a little bit of both. Um, I still ran some very, very successful uh, informants um, mm. and had at various points, whilst I was a DC and a DS, um, stepped out of uh, mainstream divisional policing and went to various specialist units to um, handle uh, an informant alongside an mm. operational team uh, in more high-end sort of work, if you like. Um, and so I, uh, I went up and went into the informant side of, um, SO10 and, um, was, um, a sort of course director, if you like, in training, um, rolling out the training, which sort of brought out all of the learning from some of the mistakes that had been made earlier, mm -hmm. um, around the handling of informants and, you know, making in some of those really difficult decisions in terms of balancing whether, uh, you know, um, 
how how much a person would be able to be involved in encouraging the commission of a crime mm-hmm. before they actually overstepped the mark and became actively yeah. engaged yeah. as a conspirator rather than as being an agent on behalf of the police who were um, therefore faithfully sort of reporting back mm-hmm. intelligence to allow more serious criminals to uh, be frustrated in committing crimes that would harm people. Mm. Um, and, it's and a really difficult really uh, balance, isn't it? Ethically, it's probably, I mean, there are lots and lots of really serious and tricky ethical conundrums in policing. And I think this is right up there with the most, the most difficult, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah it's interesting because I'm, 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 I'm spe- on the podcast, I'm speaking to Shay Doyle on Thursday and Shay, it's his pseudonym, it's not his real name. He was a, he's, he's just recently written a book called Deep Cover, How I Took Down Britain's Most Dangerous Gangsters. And he was a level one UC uh, undercover mm. officer for quite a long period of time. And I'm just reading his book. I want to try and finish reading his book before I actually speak to him. Um, really interesting. So it talks a lot about some of those really difficult um, dilemmas. Uh, and if, you know, we, and I suppose for me, it's really interesting. So I'm curious how you, what you, I'm going to ask him the same question, but I'm interested in what you think about this. There are so many ethical and moral and legal issues around the use of undercover officers and the use, and the use of informants uh, who are kind of kind of doing a similar job, albeit they're not police officers. Um, and you do wonder sometimes if in the current climate of continually seeking to find fault or um, has that whole area of policing now just become too problematic? I'd be curious to what you think about that. Um, I think it, it's, I, I suppose I have to um, preface any opinion here with the fact that I'm now eight years out of service. Yeah. I retired eight years ago. So um, my apologies to anybody uh, who is still in service and maybe doesn't agree with my personal views. Um, I think that by the time I was last involved actively in this sort of area of uh, of ethics and balance, I think we were getting to a point where it was almost untenable and Mm. almost impossible. Mm. Um, You know, the um, amongst the best informants that I ever had were juveniles. Mm. Mm. Well, you know, you almost need a a signed note from the Pope to even think about um, uh, uh, operating with a young person in those sort of circumstances. But, you know, with with those sort of um, with young people, people under the age of 18 who are on the fringes of serious and organized crime. Mm. amongst the most serious and organized crime really when you think Mm -hmm. about it you know Mm. there are more young people stabbed to death today than there ever were Mm. 20 40 50 60 years ago Mm. um and so to be able to operate safely and with safeguards around those people surely that's something that um, a a public service which is all about protecting people should be striving to do and we should be pushing the parcel and being lawfully audacious Mm. in terms of the way in which we deal with things but of course we've seen the huge cost in terms of people's careers 
and also uh, you know in terms of people's mental health frankly yeah, when yeah. they spend years and years and years under investigation and um, when some of these jobs either go wrong or somebody perceives mm. that they might have gone wrong yeah. Um, yeah. without any sort of um, without any real understanding of the circumstances yeah. and I think that's that's very sad um, mm. because I think it denies an opportunity for a good handler at the same time as taking the information from somebody who is able to provide it and they're able to provide it by virtue of the fact that they're in it mm. but also then to use a force of personality to gently steer a person away and perhaps direct them away from what would have been a life of crime. Mm. Um, you know, maybe they're never going to have a halo that they can polish at night, but um, mm. they might not be involved in stabbing people up or yeah. that's that sort of business. You know, yeah. I think there are there are bigger pictures to be seen here somewhere than some of the very narrow perspectives that are sometimes yeah. taken on risk. Um, and, you know, there are all sorts of things proposed about judicial oversight, which frankly, you know, were nonsense. Yeah. The thought well, that you could uh, get a high court judge out of bed at three o'clock in the morning, yeah. you know, is... Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, you think about it, you look, at the, you look at the undercover world and there's been this massively damaging revelations about the um, uh, inappropriate sexual relationships conducted by officers on long-term deployments. You look at the, um, I mean, it's hardly a spoiler alert on Shea's book that he's that he's written. Uh, he talks about how he's, he was having to medically retired from the job after 16, 17 years with complex PTSD. I know a, a lot of officers who worked in that sort of undercover world who have got serious mental health problems now. And and I wonder, is it is there, can it ever be ethically justified anymore i just i think if you look at the profile of someone who signs up to be an undercover officer they tend to be fairly young in service probably a bit gung-ho um thinking oh this is going to be amazing and it's incredibly competitive to get onto those and there's that sort of elitist mentality as well and and i i just wonder uh, are we are we putting people into a position that experience tells us is going to end badly for the, an awful lot of them you know what i mean yeah i mean i think i think those points the elitism and um the sort of gung-ho attitudes could well have been attributed to um my early sort of experiences i think that it has come on in leaps and bounds in terms of the sophistication of the psychological profiling and the training and support that are offered to people who um, volunteer for those really, really difficult and dangerous roles. But I guess the other side to it is that we live in a society now where um, you are so easily identified. So, you know, if you if you look at your average uh, organized crime gang, uh, and they're bringing somebody in to the fold who's new and not not known to them since they've been at school. Well, they know damn well the first way to try and flush out a police officer is to offer them some drugs mm. or say, mm. which one of these girls would you like? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, if you if you go uh, a different route and say, well, actually, do you know what? I'm, I'm gay. I'm not. No, thanks. <laughs> they say, OK, well, which one of these boys do you want? Yeah, yeah do you know what i mean it's yeah, it's yeah, there are all yeah. sorts of of um all sorts of connotations and 
the, you know, the fact that um, you can take a photograph of a person and then whiz it round mm. all the people that you know and say, does anybody know this person? Mm. Mm. Yeah, the internet, the internet has been a great um, boost to law enforcement, but it offers a great threat as well because it does, yeah. doing, doing due diligence on someone now is ever so easy with the internet compared to what it would have been like maybe 20 years ago. So, Absolutely. so, so trying to sort of, um, you know, the ability to break down someone's backstory, their legend is now a whole lot easier, isn't it? So what address did you live at when you were growing up? All right. Such a such, right. What color, you know, is the, you know, what's described that house to me? You know, I can find out that I can find that out with three or four clicks on Google Earth, can't I? I can I can check that story ever so easily. You know? Of course you can. Which school did you go to? Yeah. That's a that's a great one. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, tell you me know, who was your who was your who teacher? Was your, who was your teacher? Who was what was the name of the headmaster? And which which form were you in? Yeah, and you they'll find only, somebody who was. You can only bullshit so many times before your start story starts to fall apart, doesn't it? Yeah. But anyway, moving on, we could talk about that all day. It's a, <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna say I'll save that I'll save those questions up for Shay when I speak to him because I'm interested in, <laughs> in knowing what he has to say about it all, given that he actually lived it and uh, did it. You know, um, so SOT, you're in SO10, you're a DI. Uh, what where do you go? After I did. That? I I um one of the other sides of that role up there at that time was that um, I became uh, involved in the um, covert policing side of kidnaps right product contaminations and blackmails um and so initially trained as a, a green commander for uh, what was central 3000 mm -hmm. the covert control room uh and then went on to become a hostage negotiator right uh and a red commander for kidnaps so going out right. and actually picking up the the victim if you like yeah. of the yeah. kidnap the person who's mm -hmm. receiving the demand and then whisking them away safely, covertly, mm -hmm. to uh, a location where you could establish your red centre and mm -hmm. then assist the operational team um, by managing demand calls, managing movements of money and that sort of thing. And that was uh, an absolutely fascinating, exhausting, but fascinating. Yeah. I imagine you had a lot of, of, uh, a lot of uh, getting dragged out in the middle of the night kind of stuff with that. Yeah, we went through a period where there were only a couple of us who were actually qualified as uh, as negotiators at the time. And for a, a brief period, a matter of a couple of months, we worked a week about. So you would carry the bag and take the car yeah. literally everywhere you went. And that's Even, the whole of the Met. So that's, that's, a, that's a tiny number of people of your level yes. of expertise yeah. for the biggest force in the country, arguably in the world, really. <laughs> and it wasn't just for the Met, you know, um, we regularly had requests for specialist assistance from other forces. I spent several days down in Kent when they had a, a particularly um, unpleasant um, blackmail demand with um, death threats um, and went and ran a red centre effectively for them for uh, nice. three or four days, which had a, a great outcome. But with that also came the opportunity to, um, uh, we were talking earlier about the, uh, the pitfalls of being a career detective and mm. not being 
back, you know, going back to the future, if you yeah, like. Yeah, yeah. One of the things that I loved about that hostage negotiator role, and I, I was an active negotiator for about 13 years, um, mm. from a DI right up until the end of my service. Right. Um, and that allowed you uh, in the middle of the night to turn up to a, a, a police division somewhere in the Met mm. uh, and meet with officers and you never ever gave your rank yeah just your first name mm. and uh, you know yeah i'm here to work alongside i'm here to help you with this person on a high building or whatever it was whatever the difficulty was a yeah. siege um and so um it gave you a, at least a taste even if it was only a brief taste mm -hmm. of just what it was like at three o'clock in the morning with the rain trickling down your neck yeah your colleagues in uniform mm -hmm. who were there 24 hours a day seven days a week answering mm -hmm. the calls and dealing with everything mm -hmm. you know um, one minute a lost dog next minute a dead body yeah uh, you know it yeah. um it was fascinating and i also had the privilege to be able to um do uh, international work with the kidnaps as well yeah i was going to ask that whether you uh, did some stuff abroad yeah um i was um I got promoted to DCI in about 2004 and went mm. to set up the first confidential unit, um, which, um, or the first confidential unit as we would know it nowadays, the Met did have mm. a confidential unit at that stage, yeah. but it wasn't the model that, um, that has now sort of expanded out and yeah. gone national. Yeah. Um, and uh, I worked for an absolutely fantastic man called John McDowell. I don't know whether you had the yeah, I, I, of meeting I, John. I, I know of him. I would be lying if I said I ever worked yeah. with him, but I know of him. He's very well regarded, doesn't he? He was very, very well regarded. Bless him. He passed away with motor neuron disease, a dreadful, dreadful disease mm. some years ago now. But he was a truly visionary leader mm. um, and saw the, the value of linking up uh, intelligence from our partner agencies mm. uh, and abroad and being able to blend that in a safe way that protected everybody's sources but also mm. allowed the uh, very rich themes of intelligence there mm. to be operated on mm. um, and whilst I was um, doing that work then I went out um, to Afghanistan right. deployed to Kabul um, on a kidnap um, uh, on uh, of a, a man who'd been uh, a former military and had gone back as a security advisor and was taken between Kabul and Herat. Right. Um, and unfortunately, that didn't end well, um, and it turned into a body recovery operation. So was that was, that a, was he taken on ideological grounds, or was he taken on uh, fin as a sort of a demand, financial demand? It was bit? more a financial demand basis. Right. Um, and there were all sorts of international politics playing out on the ground at the time as well. He was taken in a sector that was controlled by the United States um, authorities at mm. the time as opposed to the British. So there was a, a degree of um, bet hedging in terms mm. of what um, operational moves we made at what times and who was deployed when and where. Mm. Um, but um, yeah, I had, uh, that was a real, insight into mm. um how 
you could go from the streets of London literally to yeah. the opposite sides of the globe, yeah. you know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and in 2006, I went again um, to Baghdad this time into Iraq um, and had the privilege of bringing Norman Kemba back right. to the UK alive after his three oh. or so months chained to a radiator in, um, in a suburb in Baghdad. Oh, my God. Which was, was a lucky, very lucky man. A very, a very, very lucky man. Yes, yeah. yeah. But you know, fascinating yeah. to see these operations and to yeah. work alongside. I mean, I spoke to um, on an earlier uh, one of the earliest episodes of the podcast. I spoke to uh, Scott Walker, who uh, who was on the kidnap and extortion unit uh, in London, and then went into that area of business um, in the private sector for you know, uh, as as you know, the, a lot of these sort of maritime hijackings and things like this um and uh yeah really interesting it was really interesting to compare the law enforcement approach with the private sector approach you know law enforcement you know it was all about trying to catch the baddies and bring a successful prosecution and get the get the hostage back obviously safe and well uh, in the private sector it was just all about money really it was just uh it's how much is it going to cost us to pay something yeah. balanced over how much it's going to cost you yeah. to uh, to work for two or three weeks to get our person back. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And it is as hard nosed as that, isn't it? It is. Yeah, it is. Yeah. So. Um, so anyway, you, you eventually end up um, in the CT world, don't you, which is kind of where I spent quite a lot of my time as well. So you were what what took you on that sort of journey then? Um, well, <laughs> I got I got one of those phone calls right. <laughs> just after the uh, the dreadful events in 2005 when the London bombings happened. Yeah. Um, uh, I got a phone call to say, "Where are you working now?" Right. Uh, the person who I was speaking to knew exactly where I was working. I said, "Well, you you know where I am." He yeah. said, "I don't know. You're not uh. <laughs> getting a lift." <laughs> Oh, dear. You're coming. You're coming here, whether you whether you like it or not, which was fantastic because uh, you know it's. Uh, I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed my time. So uh, in 2006, I went to what was then SO13, just before right. it transitioned, as an SIO, um, right. and uh, had the had the privilege of working alongside some of the finest detectives I've ever met. Right. Um, it, it really was. Uh, so, so that was a. Um, so you'd had we'd had the we'd had the sort of seven we'd had this sort of seven seven and the twenty one seven incidents that I talked a lot about in the previous mm-hmm. uh, two or three podcasts, um, and um, that then there was a lot going on, wasn't there, around that sort of time? We were generally exceptionally exceptionally busy. Um, we were working. Um, flat out all around the globe i mean it was uh, you know it was rarely a, a week um certainly rarely a month when i wasn't on a plane mm. somewhere internationally mm. and we did some quite remarkable work working alongside our partners from uh, various agencies and also from agencies from other countries as well mm. um where uh devices had been found laptops mm mobile phones etc etc um and the um skills of our forensic analysts are and uh forensic examiners 
were mm. just second to none. Mm. Mm. Um, and they identified active plots in various parts of the UK, yeah. um, some of which are now matters of public record, some of which mm. aren't. Um, yeah. And yeah. we mounted some very, very sophisticated um, operations to yeah. either bring people to justice or where mm. that wasn't possible to neutralize yeah. the threat and divert yeah. people away. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that was two sides to a coin, really. Um, on the one hand, my role initially as an SIO was to take on these investigations. We'd go to the big tasking meeting mm. once a week and uh, yeah, you're in the frame, mate. You've got this one. Um, mm -hmm. And then at the same time, also SIOs were invited to go. We just started the work um, on trying to divert people as well. So uh, the channel mm. program. Yeah. Um, and I can remember going away for a weekend to a hotel down in Hampshire somewhere uh, and running a, a sort of tabletop exercise, if you like, yeah. with uh, loads of people from different mosques. Right. And um, it was the first time that I'd had real close to close, close face up contact with um, people. Um, who held positions of respect and responsibility within those communities mm. and the opportunity then to be able to sit alongside them get to know them mm. initially they were quite standoffish mm. quite mistrusting but you use all of your people skills and you know an hour in you get a laugh out of somebody yeah. two hours yeah. in you know yeah. you get a chuckle out of a couple yeah. by the afternoon you're all sitting down together over a cup of tea and mm. discussing okay well look this is what as a mm. an investigator this is what i would be asking my people to do this would be the strategy that i would set mm. in order to meet this what would you do mm. if you were sitting in my chair mm. and it was quite remarkable by yeah. the end of a, a yeah. weekend of that you know you've got people on the other side if you like it was never them and us because yeah, um, yeah. again like the rest of society 99.9 percent .9 of those communities are decent honest law-abiding and really valuable members of our communities mm. but they were just completely um i was going to say ignorant that's a very hard word they weren't uh they hadn't been exposed to yeah the ethical and operational dilemmas that investigators yeah. faced. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And when you expose them to it, it led to a much deeper understanding and you found all sorts of common ground. And yeah, yeah. I'm glad to see that those programs continue. Um, I hope they do continue today. Yeah. They were really it's, useful. It's been a massive, it's been a massive learning experience, hasn't it, for the entire police family um, over that sort of 20 year period and and there's been many times that they've got it right and there's been many times they've got it horribly wrong haven't they absolutely um, yeah and it's interesting how we were all probably quite naive in the early days because suddenly we had to get our heads around this massive massive threat um to the public um you know from people who had no compunction about killing themselves and actually sought that and sought to kill as many people as they possibly could but then we kind of I think probably did some quite clumsy stuff uh, within the uh, Muslim community. Um, and, uh, you know, it's a bit like, suppose the analogy for me would be, if it was a Northern Irish analogy, 
um, why do you think that going and asking a, a bunch of middle-aged or middle-class people in one particular part of Belfast how they can tackle the provisional IRA you know they go well I don't know I, I don't know anything about the provisional IRA I've never had any dealings with them um, you know they don't mix in my circles they are very secretive so why are you asking me just because I'm from Northern Ireland um, what you know you think I'm going to be able to tell you all about uh, the IRA and in the same way I think we probably were quite clumsy in those early days about sort of finding it difficult I mean the classic one was when I was at uh, in, in the counterterrorism unit in, in Birmingham, there was this um, very, very clumsy installation of all of these covert CCTV cameras in all through parts of Birmingham, uh, which were badged as a community reassurance thing, but actually they were all about CT. And I mean, I wasn't involved in that in that project at all, but. It was a massive own goal, massive own goal, and it and it kind of alienated so many people within good people, good decent people living in those communities who who may have previously been able to help us sort of tell us about something that they'd seen that they weren't very happy about. But then something like that happens, and you think, oh my God's sake, you know. It's just, and I remember being told about that um, years ago. Uh, and and looking at look, I thought someone was taking the. I thought there was it was a wind up. I was like, are you are you for real? The, the, what they've done, they've installed all these cameras, and they don't think anybody's going to either realise or or be or be potentially <laughs> upset by that. You know, <laughs> you know. I think we have scored some terrible own goals. Oh way, yeah. We? Well, it's. I think it's the policeman's paradox, isn't it? Really, when you boil it all down, you can spend twelve months getting to know a person or a group or a community and you can take that right down to being a beat pc somewhere or a youth pc who's running a, a, foot, a sports team or a you know five a side team or something and one small misplaced incident or sometimes even just a word can in a second undo yeah years worth of work That's because right. people are People are naturally um, wary of authority. Um, mm. You know, uh, I don't know about you, but when I was a kid, you know, if you ever saw a police car, the immediate thing, thing you thought was, oh, what have I done wrong? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I mean, anybody who's uh, listening to what I just said there is a curious, well, that's all, that's all about. Just you can find there's tons and tons of references to it on Google. But if you Google Project Champion, in Birmingham, you'll see what that's all about. And it was it was quite, yeah. quite right, quite rightly, um, you know, the subject of a great deal of criticism and uh, illegal challenge and all sorts. So, yeah. So. Um, so anyway, you um, you then. So, so where do you go after that? What's what's next? right? Well, I, so I went up to what was 13 in uh, just in 2006. I was there as a DCI. Um, SIO until 2008 when I got mm. through a superintendent's board um, on my third attempt through that. The previous attempts had been earlier and were pitiful. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I was retained within SO15 and uh, became the head of the forensics and support wing within, oh, right, okay. within investigation. So the bomb data center and oh. various other in, you know, the forensic um intelligence teams um 
the major incident rooms um, and all all those sorts of um, small departments, small but vital departments. Yeah, yeah. So support. it's quite a, quite a little bit of a departure then for you because that's kind of very much about sort of day-to-day operational capabilities, isn't it, as opposed to a covert a lot of yes. the stuff you'd previously done have been in the covert world it's been in the covert world this yes is, this is kind of stuff that's more about responding after something has happened isn't it it is and support well um it, it had two sides to it if i'm honest um responding after the event so my my role was very much to um be right up close and alongside the sios and saying mm-hmm. well look what what else can we do? Can I suggest something that might help you out with this strand of your inquiry or that strand of your inquiry in a reactive sense? Yeah. But then on the proactive side, there was an awful lot more that then went with it in terms of the forensic intelligence teams and some of the massive innovations around uh, the retrieval of uh, biometrics mm-hmm. uh, covertly during surveillance operations. And, yeah. um, you know, some of it was, was really... Mm quite cutting edge uh, uh, fascinatingly clever um yeah um, i just think if i can think of one example without giving away any sort of trade secrets that anybody i suggest else... that's almost impossible <laughs> everybody would hate me for but you know being able to uh, if a if a paddy's in a in a coffee shop drinking a cup of coffee and you want to know who that person is yeah, you yeah. know there's got to be ways and means of very carefully retrieving yeah. without anybody knowing yeah, yeah, yeah. You've yeah. had the cup away, and yeah, uh, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. 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 No. It's also it's interesting because <laughs> I've I've actually been speaking to another future podcast guest today. Uh, I don't know if you ever came across him, uh, if you passed across Bob Gallagher. So he was up in the Northwest um, Counterterrorism Ooh. Unit, and he was the forensic scene manager for Manchester Arena uh, incident. Oh, yeah, that name does ring a bell. Uh, uh, one of the same, things I used to do was, part of the world was open all the bomb. Open all the bomb scene courses. Right, right. That was one of my great pleasures, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so yes, that that name does ring a bell. Yeah. So yeah. So it's inter- really interested in chatting to him about that. But you know, I always find the the bomb data center. So for those who don't understand what the bomb data center is, um, and you will know this very well, of course, from your previous <laughs> life, is that uh, in what used to be the SO13, which used to be the anti-terrorist branch, but which then became sort of uh, the SO15 um, and, then, and then became the counter-terrorist command. So it sort of morphed along different, uh, but, but basically the bomb data center is um, a repository of every single, uh, it's like the center of expertise around uh, explosive devices that have been used uh, in the UK over many, many years, isn't it? So it goes yeah. right, right back to sort of, even sort of pre-IRA days, isn't it? It, it is, yeah. And we used to take all sorts of um, exhibits in there once they'd been finished with at court and bring them in, take them apart. The, the team in there were very, very specialist. Um, you know, there were all sorts of artifacts in there. We had Carlos the Jackal's pistol, um, you know, things that are the, are the stuff of films. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And, and, of course, they're very, very important training uh devices training tools for other investigators you know to see just like the ingenuity that people had um Mm. applied in building devices designing their own homemade devices to to kill other human beings yes the ingenuity of man is endless 
Yes, absolutely. <laughs> uh, what used to I used to find the bomb data center stuff really fascinating in terms of how devices were constructed, and you know you've worked very closely with the explosive COD people, obviously in terms of um, you know once the devices had been made safe, then they would have to be forensically examined to see you know what how they were constructed, who had touched them, and all of the forensic retrievals. And yeah. then, well, and then of course, in London and. In London, one of my roles was to be the manager, the senior manager for the uh, bomb disposal teams for London, which, yeah. unlike anywhere else in the UK, are not drawn from the military. They're actually employed by the mm. Metropolitan Police mm. on behalf of the, the command. So you, you, were, you were responsible for them as well, were you? Yeah. So I'd, oh. I'd have the privilege of being able to, uh, we'd have exercises and go out on exercises with them and um, see them as they were set setting themselves challenges uh, mm. we work very closely with awe uh, and other organizations um, to um, test responses to certain devices um, i also had um, responsibility for exercising the senior engagement authority for government in right. extreme air threats so the 9-11 scenario yeah so when you have a hostile aircraft coming in um there are uh, at the time i was there there were five um mm -hmm. five very senior government ministers prime minister normally home secretary defense secretary and mm -hmm. normally a couple of others who would have the horrible task they'd get mm -hmm. the phone call cold patched mm -hmm. through from um strike command to say right we have got an aircraft coming in mm -hmm. at this height it's uh ostensibly a, a plane bringing back holidaymakers to the UK from somewhere in the Middle East um, or somewhere else in the world. It didn't have to be the Middle East anywhere. Um, and the responders have just been turned off, the transponders rather. So mm. it's uh, not beaconing. Um, it's deviated from its flight path. Mm. And with the assistance of a very, very clever uh, lady, a wing commander from the RAF, um, and with my some of my colleagues from my little SNT team, um, we used to run exercises in Cobra right. for those very senior engagement authorities. Mm -hmm. And the exercise is very difficult getting into the diary of a prime minister or a deputy prime minister or mm -hmm. whatever. Um, so they'd give us an hour. Right. Now, these incidents would uh, run in less than 10 minutes. Right. But it's amazing how intense Mm -hmm. an hour yeah. can be in, yeah, yeah. in those circumstances where you've got very, very, very senior politician there and you're saying to them, right, okay, well, here's feed number one. This mm. is the aircraft. It's coming up the southwest approaches from Bristol. All the transponders have gone off and it's deviated from its flight path. It's deviated from its altitude path. And, um, you know, what do you think we should do about it? Do you want to launch fighters? Do you want mm. to uh, see what happens? You know, what's what's the latest? Mm. And as the exercise developed, we used a, a, an interactive PowerPoint that showed all the movements of aircraft all around. Mm. Um, and, and, you know, OK, so we now think that uh, it's deviated from its flight path sufficiently. that We can say with some degree of confidence that it looks like it's heading towards Canary Wharf. Mm. You know, it's coming up the Thames Valley now. If mm. you made a decision to shoot this aircraft down now, it may land in the outskirts of Reading and may possibly kill thousands of people. Mm. However, if you allow it to run and it does target 
Canary Wharf. It will land in the centre of London mm. and kill tens of thousands of people. And, you know, and yeah. this is the profile of people on the aircraft. You know, we know there are 290 souls on the aircraft, 16 mm. of which are children, mm. four of which are babes in arms under 18 months of age. You know, mm. what an awful, awful dilemma. Yeah, uh, it's a nightmare, isn't it? It's a nightmare. And um, yeah, let's just hope that uh, we never have to make those sort of calls for real, because I don't think there is a there's not there a right a, or wrong answer. Right or no, no, I don't think there, there isn't is a right or wrong yeah. answer. Yeah. And um, one of the things that um, I took away from that sort of experience was um, the humility mm. or otherwise mm. of some of our very senior people yeah. in terms of the way they reacted and responded. Mm. Um, you know, it's, yeah. uh, I can think. I can think. All I can say is, I can think of certain cabinet ministers I would rather have sat in that seat than others. Let's just, <laughs> let's just probably leave it at that. Eh? <laughs> uh, yes, I think that's probably the safest. So from from there, I was I was superintendent and sort of head of forensics and support. Um, and then in at uh, the end of two thousand and nine, uh, I, I got promoted to chief superintendent. Uh, DCS and I went to ACPO TAM as it was right okay um, as Victoria the Street. national yeah Victoria Street is up on the seventh floor as the national coordinator for domestic extremism um, took over from a, an ACC uh, lovely fellow called Anton Setchell who was a Thames Valley um, officer and uh, became national coordinator uh, and I oversaw a project that was reforming the ACPO TAM structure mm. into its proper place within the uh, national CT structure. So um, what was originally uh, several different units, uh, mm. I had a unit in Cambridgeshire, which was mm. uh, sort of legacy from the days of Huntington Life Sciences and the animal yeah, rights did you, stuff. Were you responsible then for the National Public Order Intelligence Unit? I was, yes. That was part of your... Yeah area then okay. uh, i had uh, the national domestic extremism team the national extremism coordinating and tasking unit the national public order intelligence unit you name it you know there were all sorts of acronyms flying around but um again met and worked with some truly fantastic and professional people does the national community attention team sit under you as well there's there's all sorts no. of these weird and wonderful little little sort of offices dotted around the place that you know even for those of us who worked in counter-terrorism I could never bloody remember who, who they all were or what they did you know you could go along a corridor and open a door and find a whole group of people working away and think oh my god I never knew you existed but they'd all sprung up for for, for good reasons at the time yeah but, um you know there was clearly a need to streamline and bring things back in and and the time that I took over at the um took over as national coordinator i inherited um the mark kennedy um issues day backle uh yeah and also the badger cull and um various other things that uh, were was causing uh, a massive um hiccups on the political scene although um you know in in terms of everything else that was going on mm. whether they you know whether they were at the right level or not is is a a, a different matter and i also was there uh, throughout the uh, 2011 london riots right all oh, right so that's interesting so, which was have... which was fascinating because yeah. uh, 
Well, that's where counterterrorism meets public order, well, meets kind of crime investigation. So you were probably a very good man to have sat in that <laughs> chair. <laughs> well, of course, you know, you, you couldn't possibly politically have counterterrorism policing diverted to deal with rioting on the streets of London. Yeah. Uh, or, and or the streets of any other city that's you know what this isn't terrorism yeah so it here's was a, domestic so, extremism so, so i've had so I've, <laughs> I've i've stuck my neck out on this one a few times already so i'm going to stick it out again i think okay i'm just curious what you think okay i think that the counterterrorism network is way too precious about its resources and should have been playing nicely and sharing some of those capabilities with other areas of policing that were experiencing some real pressure post the horrible Theresa May, David Cameron years when knife, yes. crime, knife crime and gun crime went through the roof. I mean, so having to, it's a massively loaded question. <laughs> and I, would, I, would, I, would, I would instantly fail my interviewing course wouldn't i if i was to ask a question like that of anyone in any any other forum but what what are your thoughts on that i absolutely agree yeah. i think the bottom line is that um it's all about the uh smartest use of public money and resources and i think that um, whilst you have to have a significant amount of specialist resource kept um ready to respond to terrorist incidents when they occur um, the idea that those people could never be involved in other operations to me is an absolute nonsense however yeah. um, you know you mentioned two names there Theresa May and David Cameron my god yeah. never in the field of human conflict have two people done so much damage to policing yeah. and it will last a lifetime yeah. it will last a generation I think so yeah. um, the, uh, the policies that they brought in, you know, absolutely dreadful. But that's those are my own opinions. And yeah, well, I think it's the know, opinion. I'm entitled of, to have them now because yeah, I'm, no, I'm no longer a police officer. But it's, it's the opinions <laughs> of pretty much everyone in policing, isn't it? And um, and the thing that upsets me, and I know I've banged on about this, and I don't want to turn this into another episode of me slagging off Theresa May, but <laughs> you know, uh, <laughs> everyone's had enough of that. Um, but the thing that upsets me, really upsets me about all of this, Adrian, is that in any other area of public life, if anyone within the policing or the military or the fire service or the health service or any of these other public bodies had caused a tenth of the amount of damage, they would have been dragged through public inquiries, they would have been held accountable, and arguably they'd be in prison, actually, um, for the amount of damage that they'd caused. But they just have got away with it. They've got away with it, haven't they? Well, they have. And it's the, you know, without without labouring anything and, and uh, causing a whole load of distress to a whole load of people who don't deserve it. Um, you know, Theresa May was apparently incandescent with fury, if you believe the uh, the press, when uh, this latest business about an MP watching porn on a phone in the chamber came out, which is thoroughly beyond the pale. Yes, just hard, but, hard to even, hard even credit that. But I'm sure if you look back in the annals of history, she probably had an opportunity to put set that standard a few years earlier with one of her own. Yeah, 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 yeah. 
Well, it's, uh, it's say, no, say no more. But, yeah, uh, you know, yeah, there yeah. were two in, there were two inquiries in Parliament that cleared an individual and then uh, a very courageous uh, DC who was very, very poorly at the time uh, mm. and not expected to live actually went public in the Sunday papers and said, I wrote to both those inquiries and said that the minister concerned had been watching porn on his yeah. computer and they ignored yeah. me twice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You yeah, know, so yeah. it's it's. It's very much one rule for them, a different rule for everybody else. And, you know, and the, and the thing I had to sort of, I nearly choked in my cornflakes the other day when I saw that um, the bad behaviour, the misogyny, the sexism and the porn watching and all of this uh, is being described by Tory MPs as just a few bad apples. So, so it's just a few bad apples when it's the Tory party. But when any other area of public life experiences that type of bad behaviour, it's institutional, isn't it? It's, they should be hung, drawn and quartered, sir, yeah. shouldn't they? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's a, you know, it, it, society is what society is and, and power corrupts, as we all know. But um, yeah, 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 some, yeah. some very questionable uh, decisions have been made in the past and yeah, some things yeah. have been scooped under the, uh, under the corporate carpet. Yeah, yeah. So talking, um, talking of corporate, um, I think we've now that we've kind of established that you, you and I are on the same page on all of that. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, where um, let's move through to your life in the private sector because you've got you've done you know what I mean. What what the hell do you have for your breakfast every morning? Because you know what I mean. That you need to you deserve to just go and lie in a sun lounger with a with a good book or something and. Uh, but I'd suspect you're the sort of person that would never want to do that because yeah, he was full of energy. But um, what? Uh, what? So what's your what's your what's your work in the corporate um, world looking like at the moment? Well, um, I suppose to finish off the job in thirty seconds. Sorry. And one of the reasons why I I do have some of those opinions that I have is that uh, I should have uh, I, my thirty years with my consolidated service was up in January 2012. Right. Uh, I didn't want to go. I wasn't ready to retire. Uh, mm. In fact, I was in complete denial, really. Um, but I was very lucky enough to get to asked to go over to the Home Office on a secondment right. and work on the NCA programme as uh, Keith Bristow, the first uh, Director General that was appointed as his Chief of Staff. Right. So I had a fascinating insight into uh, the Theresa May years of the Home Office. Uh, I did that for six months and then got moved over onto a project to do with um, uh, the use of secret intelligence in mm. policing and the setting up of the regional organised crime units, right. uh, that network. And I did that for a further two years, seconded into the Home Office. Um, so, so there's probably, I suspect you and I know probably quite a few people, actually, if we were to have a beer offline, uh, <laughs> quite a few of the people I know you will probably know as well. Oh, so. absolutely. But I retired in uh, April of 2014. Right. Um, I had to make the decision to go relatively quickly, um, not least because my daughter, who uh, is 34 now, um, had uh, cancer for the third time and had had a um, in effect a terminal diagnosis required oh. a transplant um, it is a very happy story because we were um, she uh, needed a bone marrow transplant right we went up to university college and a massive shout out to all of our wonderful NHS professionals they uh, they did a, an, an absolutely astounding job 
Uh, and I actually lived up at University College Hospital with my right. daughter right. for the six months that it took oh, to go through you. this process. Um, whilst they rebuilt her from the inside out, it, uh, wow. punishing, punishing process. But I also, at the same time, retired from the the uh, the Met, uh, mm. but started the following morning with Crime Stoppers. Right. Okay. Who so were just, so just extremely supportive? Did she make a, a recovery? She's made a very full recovery. Yeah, and I have uh, two lovely grandchildren. Oh, one, one at uh, one at fantastic. secondary school, and one just going up to secondary school. So as I say, it's a very happy end. Oh, that's fantastic. But uh, I went to Crime Stoppers, and they were remarkably good. Looked after me extremely well, um, and put up with me working remotely whilst I was supporting my daughter. Um, so I was able then to sort of start to learn a little bit more about the corporate world and about how, you know, sponsorship works yep. with big companies and all that sort of thing. And some of the politics mm. around all of it. Yeah. Um, and one of the one of the areas in policing, which is probably valued the least is intelligence. Mm. Mm. Uh, and if you then dip into that pot one of the areas of intelligence that's probably valued the least in amongst the intelligence is crime stoppers. Mm. So if you go to the public in your area and say, yeah. please tell us about burglary, robbery, yeah, yeah. Or whatever, yeah, yeah. and we won't take your name. Mm. We never know who you are and we will pay you covertly a cash reward if it comes good. Yeah. Funnily enough, do you know, people pick the phone up and they tell you, <laughs> they tell you who's doing the burglaries and who's dealing the drugs. And yet there are police forces up and down the country, and I shan't name and shame, mm. but who had thousands of yeah. Crime Stopper reports yeah. that they didn't have the resources to action. Now, yeah. I have a great deal of sympathy for them because resources are scant. That you know links nicely back to um, the, uh, the Tory years and how they've absolutely decimated policing. But um, there's loads of intelligence from communities who are desperate yeah. to tell the police yeah. exactly yeah. what their yeah. problems are. Yeah. But the police has got its fingers in its ears because it yeah. doesn't have sufficient yeah. resources well, to get on with. There's a lot of senior cops too busy bloody virtue signaling or pursuing some nonsensical, you know, project that has almost zero impact on public safety. You know, ah, so. but if you're a very, very senior officer, that's most important because it means you don't <laughs> you don't ever have to do the D word. And for a very senior officer, the D word, the decision word. Oh, yeah. Make a decision. Yeah. Because yeah, if you've never made a decision, nobody can tell you you were wrong. You can yeah. say I was thinking of doing that. But now yeah. you've told me there was something else. I was also thinking of doing that. But yeah. Um, so, yeah so, so just on the private sector then. So you you moved into um, so you're is it, it's safe. Uh, police safe booths, safe booths. So I did I did two and a half years with um, Crime Stoppers. Thoroughly enjoyed it. I did eighteen months. Uh, did a project for the Parliamentary and Health Service Ombudsman PHSO mm -hmm. as their senior investigator, um, and uh, assisted them in moving all of their investigative teams from London to Manchester. Um, that was really interesting, and I met some wonderful, wonderful people there. So, what, so what's, great what, do job. They, what do they do then? They take public complaints about um, government agencies and the health service. So oh, if gosh. you have, yeah, <laughs> if you have, uh, a, you know, if you're injured during surgery or you have a, a, some form of uh, tragic loss because of a mistake that was avoidable, right. uh, many people choose to sue. Right. But the uh, PHSO, um, it's not 
particularly well known, which is a mm. great shame. And the role of an ombudsman is not particularly well understood, which again is a great shame. They are extremely dedicated, professional, and thoroughly competent people mm. who mm. will take up those public complaints uh, on behalf of the public and um, bring those large uh, government agencies and quangos, you know, could be the DVLA, could mm. be the Environment Agency, who's yeah. allowing, you know, untreated sewage to be pumped in somewhere or or, or some other harm. Mm. And, and they hold those um, organisations to account publicly. Mm. Mm. Um, and they they do a, a massive massive amount of good uh, mm. really really dedicated skilled staff and I had a great time there um, and in 2018 um, after the uh, all of the investigations moved from London to Manchester spookily enough I don't live in Manchester so <laughs> I didn't go with them mm. um, I, I uh, finished that and I then became involved in an engineering startup um, which is really, really fascinating. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a complete um, departure from anything that uh, I knew. Um, and I've learned, <laughs> I learned something different every day. Um, and we supply modular mm -hmm. um, holding cells, if you like. Nice. Um, they were originally designed for short-term holding, but there was never any market or interest for that um, we've developed them on uh, and now have two patents mm -hmm. on our, uh, our our modular uh cell mm -hmm. um, and effectively it's like uh although my uh, business partner doesn't necessarily like me describing it like this it's like a giant ikea wardrobe right, except okay. there's lots more swearing because it's really, really, really heavy. Okay. These things weigh about 650 kilos, but effectively right. we, we rock up to a police station um, with them on a van. Right. We carry them into custody mm -hmm. um, and we convert rooms or spaces in custody that are unsafe because of ligature points right. uh, by building these inside. And the real trick is that the front of the unit is, um, is laminated safety glass. 17 and a half mil glass with a, a gel sandwich in it. Right. Um, and on the front of it, we hang at the um, most state of the art conferencing video pack. Right. And so that cell, which yeah. has all been um, all been through all of the safety checks, um, National Police Estates Group, et cetera, et cetera, all have, uh, have um, fed into this. Um, that becomes, if you want it to, a virtual mm. courtroom. Right, so you okay. can have your first remand hearing from there, it's locked inside, mm -hmm. safely inside. Right. It's completely ligature free because of the way that uh, we pull it all together with these different bolts to, to tighten it down. So you can't come to any harm in there. It's all made of steel. So you're, you're not going to hurt yourself or mm -hmm. anybody else. Um, you and can see designed, out through the front. It's designed to be slept. I mean, can you sleep? Has it got a bed? Can you sleep? No, in no, it and all that? no, no, no. It's it's literally a cubicle size, so we can put it up inside a room. Right. Um, okay. One of the most um, one of the most satisfying fits that we've done was at Canterbury in Kent, um, where we used a a what was a consultation room, solicitor's consultation room, that uh, had to be taken out of service because of pipes running across the ceiling that they couldn't divert. Yeah. Um, and they were using it as a, a storeroom for the cleaners, right? for mops. So we put this thing in. It's yeah, yeah. a metre wide by one and a half metres uh, deep, if you like, the mm. floor plate. 
Um, and we just built this, clambering all over it. And within a morning, generally speaking, takes about two and a half hours to uh, to from being an empty room to having this completed and built. Mm. Plug it into the wall. Uh, the Force IT network recognize it as a new desktop on their right. system. And you can do a, um, you can have it as a virtual court. Mm -hmm. You can, um, there's a different variant that is a virtual witness box. So you could put them in refuges, offsite locations. Right. You could put them at remote police stations where officers are regularly called 50 miles away to go to court and they can give their evidence inside a, a, a booth, which has been designed in partnership with representatives from the Ministry of Justice and Majesty's Courts and Tribunal Service, mm -hmm. so that the person who is the subject of the of the legal exercise is the optimum distance from the camera. Mm -hmm. So the uh, the judge and the jury get a head and shoulders mm -hmm. picture, like a, uh, a, a like a bit like a passport photograph image, yeah. talking image of the person. They're exactly yeah. the right distance from the camera. Ex They've got the right sound, the right lighting, but the trick is that the camera and all the equipment is in a patented steel enclosure on the outside of the booth, right? And can't be damaged. Brilliant. So, oh God, well, I'll tell you what we could have done with a few of those in the West Midlands because towards the end of my service, I remember you know having to do because um, obviously, as you know, a lot of the custody facilities are now many miles away from you know kind of feels like pretty much many miles away from anywhere but um you know um, well that's because they were cheap <laughs> <laughs> and um and i would have to do superintendents reviews of detention of prisoners um you know and trying to oh my god trying to get them in front of a desktop computer i mean generally 90 percent of them i would do face to face because it's just easier because once you've done once you try to do a few um remotely via skype or whatever um, you just think, oh, stuff it. I'm just going to physically go there because it's just, it's just yeah. too painful to try. Because you've obviously got to get them on. You've got to get the solicitor. If it's a juvenile, you've got to get the appropriate adult as well. And uh, as well as someone who is actually sitting with them to make sure they don't start smashing up all the computer equipment, <laughs> which, which isn't entirely <laughs> unlikely, you know. <laughs> well, this is this is why it came about, you see, because through these booths now, you can do remote inspector and superintendent reviews mm. you can do an intelligence debrief of every person who comes into custody by showing them a crime stoppers video that is tailored to the intelligence needs for that force or area or that region if you like mm. you can show drugs and alcohol diversion information that's locally tailored through the your local nhs trust where's your needle exchange where can you go for help with uh, drugs or alcohol problems yeah. all the sort of stuff that traditionally the police have put posters on the walls of custody suites for without really i suppose acknowledging the fact that a significant number of the people who come into custody can't read or write yeah yeah or that they wouldn't have the time or be in the right frame of mind to take any of that information in if they walk past it. Yeah. You can do a remote triage of a person hmm. for health. fitness to Men detain an interview mental for mental health or for other conditions, hmm. COVID. Yeah, brilliant. Um, you can do a remote pace interview. Yeah. So you, now investigators like us would never... Um, condone that for murder or rape you know serious offenses but if you're mm. talking about um, volume crime mm. and your investigators are 50 miles away 
Yeah. Because little Johnny's been nicked here. Yeah. And, you know, he's got two offences and one police station. And then just across the border in another force area, he's got another two or three offences. Yeah. Well, what you do, you need one person, one jailer or detention officer to put little Johnny in the box and lock the door. They're mm. safely inside. Nothing can happen to them. You can see them through the glass door. Yeah. Yeah. And then you turn on the video and your investigators beam in they can do a remote solicitor's consultation yeah, yeah, yeah. so the solicitor at three o'clock in the morning doesn't have to uh, come out they can consult with their client from their kitchen worktop yeah yeah, yeah. um it's uh, it's quite remarkable the different uses have you these. had a, any dirty protests yet inside one of your booths um we haven't had inside one of the policing booths but we anybody do who have doesn't a... know what i'm talking about just google dodgy protest <laughs> and 1981 northern ireland and you'll get the idea we have had inside a uh, we did a healthcare variant for uh, a person as a safe refuge for a person right. with a, a very extreme um uh, autism condition very very rare condition and um so it has been thoroughly tested from a dirty right. process perspective right, and okay. all you do is just throw a bucket of hot soapy water over it oh, and it, okay. it it flows away through the uh, the rack and lock um, section on the floor. So you'd obviously planned for that. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, but they are they are so simple. Right. Yeah, yeah. No, so simple. And, uh, and uh, are you getting uh, much interest from the law well, enforcement community? We, uh, we've got lots of interest from the law enforcement community. We were the mm. only people asked to exhibit at the... Uh, NPCC National Custody Conference last year and so we built one in the breakout area and so we had representatives of all the forces coming in yeah. sitting inside and then having a call back to their force HQ yeah. to say look I'm sitting in the booth in a hotel and just to show the quality there's a, a few chief constables would be quite happy to lock inside one of those booths, oh, absolutely the the problem we've got is a political one right because the courts and tribunal service and the Ministry of Justice um, can't agree with the Home Office about who benefits most from um, first remand hearings being held over video. Police have now withdrawn from them oh, that's right. because this is one of those activities where it puts all the onus back on the police. Mm -hmm. But the benefit is actually in the courts. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so until they've cracked their heads together um, and worked this out, it's the same is true of the prisons. We uh, during COVID, we were approached by uh, a Majesty's Prison Service and we built a variant for them. And there are two operating at Wormwood Scrubs and one at HMP Durham. Right. But again, well, who's going to pay for this? Because mm. it's the courts that benefit. And so we're in this sort of, you know, public money obviously is yeah. is um, yeah. is at a premium. But um, so. We are hoping that this year is going to be the, the big year for us. Um, there is a, a program running called the VEP, the Video Enabled Policing Program, mm. which is being run uh, by the uh, Police and Crime Commissioner for Sussex, Katie Bourne. Um, and it's very forward thinking. It's about, mm. you know, if you think of custody, it's probably one of the last areas in policing where the, the modern age hasn't necessarily impacted mm. but if you wander around a modern custody suite nowadays you see a little sort of pseudo booth where photographs are taken mm. where you can take them in our booth yeah you just run that software over our camera yeah yeah why wouldn't you
you know but somebody has to stand with that person because it hasn't got a door on it and it's got you know it's it's not ligature free it's got sharp edges etc 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 whereas this is a custodial product Mm. so it's good for you know up to six hours unless somebody in it needs to use the bathroom needs to use Mm. the toilet and then you put them back in their cell right but what this we are hoping to demonstrate in partnership now with um, the video enabled policing program is that you can reduce the time spent in custody probably probably Mm. by up to 40 percent overall by using Mm. this because a person comes in they have their detention authorized then once you've got yourself worked out with what you're investigating you pop them in the booth and say okay you've got a solicitor coming through Mm. to you an interpreter yeah the length of time you have to wait for some of the more different, uh, some of the more obscure languages yeah. or the less less often used languages. Yeah. Well, you beam an interpreter, an authorized interpreter, in from his or her office desk yeah. or kitchen worktop mm-hmm. on a split screen into the cell. It's like having a Teams call. It's very much like yeah. we're doing now. Yeah. And yeah. you can split that screen as many times as you like. Mm-hmm. So you've got your solicitor, you've got your interpreter. Then you split the screen again and bring in a couple of interviewing officers who then roll straight into an evidential pace mm. interview. Yeah. At the end of it, whilst the uh, whilst the person you're interviewing is sitting up straight, you capture your images. Yeah. And then whilst you're waiting for the detention officer to come and get them out and take them back before the custody officer for bail or charging or mm. back into their cell, you then show them the pitch for intelligence yeah yeah you show them your your uh your, your drugs and alcohol diversion stuff you know um if the um independent custody visitors want to pay a snap visit mm. but they can do so at any time of the day or night by speaking to at detainee remotely inside one of these booths where they're safe sound comfortable yeah it's a really compassionate solution to um a means of bringing the 21st yeah. century into custody. Yeah, well, it certainly strikes me as being uh, a massive um, uh, means of saving that physical resource. There's, there's people who have to be chaperoning someone pretty much everywhere they go, um, which which slows the whole thing down, doesn't it? Because because if you're a jailer, in that, I'm sure if they're custody assistants now, aren't they? they don't call them jailers <laughs> anymore, do they? Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but in old money, if your jailer is uh, is sat with someone who's having something like, you know, one of these stages of the process, then they can only be in one place at a time, can't they? So, so anybody else who needs that custody assistant to come and get another prisoner out in order to take them into whatever, it's just, it's, yeah, no. So... Yeah, well, I, I wish you the very best with that. Um, Adrian, it sounds fantastic and very much it's the way everything's going, isn't it? Rather than fit people traveling, why why would you do that? Why would a solicitor need to travel from well, their, their office to... If you, um, if you think about it, you know, in the old days, I can remember being at Hammersmith as a PC on the crime squad and a, a young man was arrested for um, TDA, taking and driving away a car in old money in Be- in Belfast. Right. So I flew to Belfast. Mm. I had an overnight, a very hospitable overnight. Yeah, yeah. In uh, in uh, with the uh, as they were then the RUC, and yeah. they then put me and my prisoner back on a plane the following morning back to uh, London mm. because he needed to be uh, brought before the magistrates' court in West London. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nowadays, of course, what you would do is sit him in the booth in Belfast. 
dial up the clerk of the court mm-hmm. at West London Magistrates and say, we've got one of yours here wanted on a warrant. What do you want to do with them? Yeah. After all that traveling about and flying around and public money and 24 hours wasted, he got conditional bail from court. Exactly. Mm. Well, you can get conditional bail from where you've been arrested. Why would yeah. you waste all that money? And, and this is where it's sort of, um, you know, it, it seems bonkers. The politicians yeah. are just not getting involved in this. Yeah. Um, yeah. Why, take, why take somebody on a bus mm. to, a, to a magistrate's court to sit in cells there that are also condemned? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so that they can have a hearing that says, okay, surrender your passport and you can go when that could have been done from the police station yeah. or conversely, there's no way you're going to be given bail for this offense. You'll be in custody until trial. Mm. And therefore you will go to the local remand prison. Well, yeah. why don't they go straight to the local remand prison then instead of doing a dog leg to the court with all the risk that involves. Yeah, yeah. And it's the risk to staff, those dedicated detention officers, um, jailers in, in new money, in old money. <laughs> who, yeah, who have to sit in a virtual courtroom with somebody who might get some bad news and then suddenly turn into the Tasmanian devil yeah. and want to smash the machinery and smash them. Yeah, yeah. You know, it protects the staff as well as I just can't see a downside to it, if I'm honest. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. then I wouldn't, would I? <laughs> <laughs> well, do you sell them for nine and ten year olds to put in their bedrooms? Because I could I could do with a couple of those from my kids. <laughs> I think version two, I was thinking version two needs you need to go down the whole Star Trek route and get 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 version two so you can actually beam people up and sort of like teleport them to around the country. <laughs> that would be impressive. It would, wouldn't it? Eh? There's a trick. Listen, Adrian, uh, I think we're probably time diet now it's been on for more than two hours but it's been absolutely brilliant i guess i mean you've had an amazing career not just in the military but but in the police and now in the private sector and and you're just such an inspirational character for anyone who's interested in in policing and yeah i just um i do hope i sincerely hope that this exodus of people that we're seeing mid-service and the number of people who probably are likely to be leaving you know, we're, you and people like you are are probably uh, going to be rare, a rarer and rarer thing, I suspect, um, you know, until they realise the damage that's been caused and we try and hold on to people. Because of all this, you think about all the skills that you've got, the things that you've, the deep, deep, deep knowledge that you've got around policing. It doesn't happen overnight, does it? really doesn't i'm afraid it doesn't and i i read something um a couple of days ago and uh i'm sure you probably you will know the facts if i've if i misrepresent them slightly but as i understand it there are there's some ridiculous percentage something like 40 percent of officers from police scotland going to go in the next six months because of um changes to their pension regulations i mean that that does need to be fact checked yeah. um because yeah. i may have read that wrong and i've been mm. holding the newspaper upside down yeah but um there is no doubt that there is a massive percentage of very experienced officers mm. going out of the door for that particular force because yeah. like they like happened in in uh, south of the border there's a change to pension regulations and any organization commercial or public mm. cannot possibly um survive the loss of 40 percent of its workforce at yeah. the stroke of a pen yeah. and if it needs staggering then for goodness sake somebody with the political clout let's mm. let's stagger it you know mm. it this yeah. is this is about um 
this is about protecting society. Um, Well, until you understand what you're smashed, don't start smashing something up until you fully understand what it is that you're smashing up. That's what absolutely. That's what my advice would be to politicians, really. But um, anyway, listen. Um, thanks a million for coming on, Adrian. I've really enjoyed it. It's been really good fun. It's been fascinating. Um, yeah, it's just uh, really, I really massively take my hat off to you for everything you've done. You've done a, a fantastic, you've had a fantastic career. And uh, give my love to Diane. I will do. I will. And she sends hers. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. Excellent. Listen, you take care, my friend. And uh, hopefully this will be coming out in the next few weeks. All right. Cheers. All right, take care. Bye-bye. 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 So there you go. I really hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. It was fascinating. What a great guy. Uh, Funny, humble. Um, Yeah, it was just great. And um, this is what really makes doing this podcast so worthwhile to be able to speak to people like that who've done these incredible things and so much public service done you know, behind the scenes in a way that no one will ever see or understand a lot of what people like Adrian have done. And yeah, you just got to take your hat off to him. And, you know, the the thing that really stuck with me after that interview had finished was him describing, you know, this kind of horrible um, trauma that he had clearly been suffering, you know, waking up in the night and ending up crawling around in bloody in the garden oh my god you know i mean well you could do a podcast just on that alone and uh and then someone then uh, you know joins the police and subjects themselves to even more bloody trauma you just think oh you know fair play to you fair play right that was great and we've got some cracking guests coming up in the next few podcasts as well it feels as if it you know, the, there's people putting themselves forward for this now or recommending people who are who are great. So it's um, that's not to detract from people who've been on before. Everybody's been amazing from day one. But, yeah, it just seems to get better and better. Right. See you next week. If you enjoyed my podcast, I'd be really grateful if you could go on Apple Podcasts, if you use Apple, and give it a five-star review and maybe add a few words telling me what you like about it what you'd like to see more of, or what you'd like to see less of. If you use Spotify, you can give a five-star review. You can't write anything, but please give me a five-star review on Spotify. And if you've read my book and you've enjoyed it, can you please, please go on Amazon and review it and add some comments? I'd be really, really grateful. Finally, if you want to send me an email, you can do that um, via my website which is www.tjfbook or one word tjfbook.com and I promise you I'll reply to you and finally if you want to join the Tangle Juliet Foxtrot Facebook site you will find it funnily enough on Facebook thanks ever so much bye He was often in.
in our street. We used to smile and wave at him while walking on his beat. But now we never see him, it really makes us frown. No longer do we feel that we're the safest street in town. Oh. <laughs>